Hello, and welcome to a very special two-part season finale of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Now, you're probably wondering, who the hell is this? You'd be right. I'm not Spro. Nor am I Lee. I'm just like you. I'm a fan of the podcast. I love movies. And today, I want to talk about an actor. I want to take you on a journey of an actor that is instantly recognizable from the sound of his voice. And yet, while instantly acclaimed by critics and fans, never got the the respect that he was due. Now, there are two things that every actor wants to achieve in their performance. The first thing that they want to achieve is they want to be authentic. They want that character that they take on to have authentic, authentic reactions and responses. The other thing they want to do is that they want to look like they're not trying. And this gentleman was able to pull both of those off effortlessly. This individual did not come into the collective consciousness of the mainstream until 1988. Now, 88, I mean, we're talking the decade of, uh, of decadence. You know, hair metal. Everything was big and bold and bright and out there. And yet, in 1988, this actor takes on the primary antagonist, the villain of a movie that some claim is one of the greatest action movies of all time. And this person doesn't speak for the first eight minutes that he is on screen. You do not hear his voice. And yet, you can tell by his demeanor, the way he carries himself, that he is the bad guy. And when he opens his voice, it is a sound that is so rich and beautiful that we would come to know and be comforted by. But he redefines what a villain can be in 88. He introduces the sophisticated, intelligent villain and changed the game from there on out. Before he got this role in the movie, he had spent most of his time honing his craft in theater on Broadway. And it is not easy to translate talent from the stage to film. Many have tried, many have failed. And yet, the second he hits the screen and redefines the role of the bad guy, he becomes a movie star. And being almost a victim of his own success and brilliance, um, follows up in 1991 with a summer blockbuster and a role that had been in literature since 1883. So culturally, we were familiar with this character, but he was so dynamic as taking on the antagonist, the bad guy, that immediately set the standard for generations to come that they had to meet if anybody would take on the role after him. And he's aware of how good he is in this particular setting, whether it's a dramatic role or, or the role where he's playing the villain. And in 1999, decides to flip the script on everybody and flex his comedic muscles. And a lot of actors fall into this. They get typecast. They are like, oh, I need to do something else to show that I have range. And then they do something else and they show that they don't have range, but not this individual. This individual in 1999 came out with two movies where he was the comedic sidekick and he immediately, obviously was brilliant at it. His comedic timing is something that should be talked about more and studied. The way he is able to blend sarcasm and comedy in which that it is not nasty or demeaning, but almost endearing. 
is something that isn't talked about more today. And lastly, in 2002, steps into an iconic career-defining role. And honestly, might be more well-known for his role in these series of movies than anything else. Once again, takes on a character from literature that if people were reading the books and people were reading the books, they knew all about this character and yet was able to take this character and make it nuanced and layered in such a way that it was heartbreaking. If you didn't feel anything after watching him step into this role and be this character, check your pulse, you're dead inside. And it was almost his way of being introduced to a new audience, a, a younger generation. It's rare that an actor can span three decades with career-defining roles. Roles that are going to last in the cultural consciousness. We will forever remember these performances. And what I will remember most of watching this individual on screen is the way that no matter whether he was the villain, the comedic sidekick, the tormented everyman, or the teacher, it was authentic. It was sincere. It was cool. It was effortless. It looked like he wasn't even trying. And yet with his performances, he redefines a genre and sets a new standard that every actor that comes after him will have to reach. And let's be honest, probably won't. This actor deserves that respect deserves that recognition, deserves an episode on Spro and Lee take on the Academy. Of course, I am talking about the one and only. Hello there, all you anatomically impaired Ken dolls, you Slytherins, you exceptional thieves, and welcome to the season two finale of Spro and Lee take on the Academy. I'm still Lee, and he's still Spro, and we're still going to rewrite Oscar history today, but we're changing up the format a little bit. You know, instead of starting with a winner, we're going to start with a loser. I'm going to, that sounds bad. I'm going to, hold on. How about this? <laughs> <laughs> How about this? We're going to start instead with an actor, someone we believe is long past due for an award, and then we're going to work backwards from there. So you, you'll get the idea once we get into it. I'm excited. You should be excited too. First things last. How are you, bro? I don't think that's how first things last works as a phrase, but... I'm good. And I think today is going to feel good because while we say we right the wrongs to do so, we have to unwrap the Oscar grubbing fingers of people proud to have won, which if they ever listen to this podcast might upset them. But today, the only people we may piss off are some Slytherins, some demonic barbers, a self-righteous thief. So today won't really eat at my guilty conscience as much as all the others do. Huh. I consider myself a pretty guilty person, but I've never felt the slightest twinge just for sharing <laughs> my cinematic opinions here. Do you feel genuine guilt for what we do here? In a word, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do, especially as someone that has written their own Oscar acceptance speech hundreds of times. Winning the award is one of the, uh, I mean, rarely does it really change a person's life. Sometimes it even ruins a career. There's a long list of people who have won the award and their next movie was an absolute flop. I'm thinking Halle Berry, who won for Monsters Ball and her next released film was Catwoman. And what was, uh, what has Adrian Brody done since The Pianist? But for the artist to think about winning, holding that gold statue, thanking the production studio's campaign 
means to get them. Wait, no, they don't do that. But rather thinking their mom and dads, man, I want it. And I wouldn't want two mediocre assholes in a room thinking they could take it away from me. But here we are, Spro and Lee taking on the Academy. But I've rewritten my own Oscar speech, though. It now starts with, stay, stay tuned, tuned for this, this episode, episode of Spro and Lee take, take away, away this award. Uh-huh. So I'm already coming up with my comeuppance. I watched my favorite Oscar acceptance speech of all time last night. Which one is that one? That would be Joe Pesci, who says, "Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And then walks off stage. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. And, and when you watch that one side by side with Matthew McConaughey, I got three people in my life. One person I, I want to be, one person I, I'm chasing. What I can't remember is nonsense bullshit. What an asshole. All right. It's funny. You completely ruined that Oscar moment for me because I didn't think about it how you presented it at the time. But it's like the Academy Awards like shining moment. They love that picture that shows him like with his eyes closed, looking up at the ceiling as everybody is like clapping around him. Ugh. And I think like they use like a segment of the speech for a car commercial. Like they love that moment. And when you were like, it's the most grandiose egotistical moment, I'm like, "Mm, yeah, (laughs) it actually kind of is. (laughs) It's awful. And to um, my hero, that's who I chase. Now, when I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come to me and say, who's your hero? And I said, I don't know, I gotta think about that. Give me a couple of weeks. I come back two weeks later, this person comes up and says, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it. You know who it is? I said, it's me in 10 years. So, you know, shit talking aside and and the ensuing guilt, why have we gathered together today? We haven't really gathered because it's just you and me. So we've accumulated, (laughs) I would say. Our listeners are with us. Our listeners are with us. We're gathering. Okay. So we're here to discuss an absolute legend, a veteran actor whose CV boasts 68 credited appearances, but whose breakout role didn't come along until he was already 41 years old. An absolute master who summed up his approach to life and work thusly, I want to swim in both directions at once. Desire success, court failure. His close friends call him a sweetheart of a human being, despite his being typecast as sarcastic, dismissive, or downright evil. His soul shuffled off this mortal coil far too soon, and regrettably, before he got the gratitude he truly, madly, and deeply deserved. And though gone, his unmistakable voice still echoes in our minds, and probably will always. That man is Alan Rickman! Alan Sidney Patrick Rickman. Like Helen Mirren, also one of our presenters this evening, Alan played the wicked and corrupt sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Alan Rickman, of course, shot to international fame in Die Hard with Bruce Willis, the star of Truly Madly Deeply. Uh, well, thank you. This uh, this will be a healthy reminder to me that subtlety isn't everything. <laughs> Rickman was a constant, or so it felt, and when he died, it was not only a surprise, it was kind of unbelievable. It was like Tom Petty or Robin Williams. Alan Rickman was one of those fixtures that we sort of took for granted. Uh, Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I guess I kind of assumed he'd always be around, and when word got out that he'd succumbed to cancer, I was more crestfallen than I probably should have been for someone that I'd never met. I was out with friends at the time. We were going to a hockey game, and I'm not joking when I say I felt this deep sadness knowing he just wouldn't be around anymore. I remember the first time I saw an Alan Rickman performance in the theater and it was in Kevin Reynolds' wildly fun Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. We'll talk about it more later. But nine-year-old Lee was obviously a little bit more focused at the time on A, Maid Marian, and B, Brian Adams' song. But man, did Rickman's... 
But man, did Rickman Sheriff Nottingham make that messy movie work, especially now that I look back on it. He's hilarious. He's quotable. Two attributes I was kind of unaccustomed to seeing in villains. And I guess sometimes... There's just actors for whom a 50-foot-tall theater screen still isn't quite big enough. What are your impressions of Mr. Rickman there, Spro? And I don't mean I shouldn't have done an impersonation earlier because now I sound like a hypocrite, but let's (laughs) not do the... I mean, go ahead. Do whatever you want. I mean, I can't do an Alan Rickman impersonation to save my life. I was listening to his voice last night, catching up on some of the final movies I had to watch for this episode, and I was like, I don't understand where it comes from. It's like right above the Adam's apple, (laughs) you know, Uh like type of thing. Uh, Oh, I couldn't do it. (laughs) I obviously, I think I was with a majority of our listeners, probably the first time that I saw Al Rickman was in Die Hard. I had one of those fathers who used me as an excuse to go out to see movies, regardless of their rating. (laughs) So pretty sure I saw Die Hard in the theater. And I didn't make the connection, though, I don't think to how good of a villain he was until actually seeing Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is the third Die Hard for those that don't know. And in that, there is a clip when Bruce Willis realizes that Jeremy Irons is Alan Rickman's brother. They show a clip of Alan Rickman falling from the building. And I put those two together and I was like, oh my gosh, that was the villain from one and two burned in my brain. And I was like, "That I want to revisit that. I want to revisit that guy's role. And that's when I think I started getting into the, the lexicon of Alan Rickman. Before we go any further, let's have an Oscar fun fact brought to you by Odd Dog Court. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a salad bean, and when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd dog. So the Oscar fun fact, what the hell is an honorary award? Mm. I'm taking this from the web- Academy's website itself. Side note, I often wonder how we would be perceived by the Academy. While contentious in nature, Spro and Lee take on the Academy is pointing out faults of the Academy Awards. While celebrating the films, they are also shining a flashlight on. I do believe our show is a celebration of the Academy Awards. Much like one would try a multi-star Michelin chef's recipe and go, but you know what would be make it perfect? A little crunch, a little fried onions or something. If the chef gets pissed, he's an asshole. If he takes the note, he's open to growth. I do hope the Academy, filled with artists and producers and writers and everyone in the biz who has had to take constructive critiques or quote-unquote notes their entire life, are able to take ours with a grain of salt. I'm sure they're able to take yours with a grain of salt. No, no, but you are an audience member. Like, you 
you should also weigh on their mind. Okay. All right. Yeah. No. You know what I'm saying? Like we make we make art for people like you. I make art for people like you. <laughs> and we both stand way on the edge <laughs> of the academy's perception, uh, seemingly. So this is from their website, straight from the horses' mouths themselves. Okay. What is an honorary Oscar? And Lee, I'm going to ask for your help because while I lifted this from their website, I felt it incomplete as the writer I am. So anything I read is from the Academy and anything you read is written by us. Okay. Honorary awards are given for lifetime achievements, exceptional con- contributions to motion picture arts and scientists, and outstanding service to the Academy. The Academy's honorary award is given at the discretion of the board of governors and not necessarily awarded every year. The board of governors consists of 54 people, three governors for each of the 17 branches of the Academy. (laughs) And three governors at large. Is a governor at large its own separate term also? Yeah. That sucks. The (laughs) The board of governors is responsible for corporate management, control, and general policies. You know, couldn't they do this in a less bureaucratic fashion? Like, like, Whoever's in charge of it, you call them Dorothy and or the wizard. If it's a girl or a, you know, wouldn't that be more fun? And then everyone else is like, Mr. Blue, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Purple. No? All right. (laughs) The Board of Governors is responsible for corporate management control and general policies. They also appoint a CEO and COO to supervise the administrative activities of the Academy. The honorary award may or may not be an Oscar statuette. When it is, the award is presented as part of the Academy Awards ceremony. This is the honorary award most familiar to the public. It is sometimes given to honor a filmmaker for whom there is no annual Academy Award category, such as choreographer Michael Kidd in 1996. Who choreographed for such films as Guys and Dolls, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and Hello, Dolly. And for instance, animator Chuck Jones in 1995. A pioneer in animation, much like Walt Disney, and one of the minds behind Looney Tunes. I think his most recognizable work may be seen every Christmas in the 1966 version, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. It can also be given to an organization such as the National Film Board of Canada in 1988. In recognition of its 50th anniversary and its dedicated commitment to originate artistic, creative, and technological activity and excellence in every area of filmmaking. Whew, Spro, did you know that the Canadian Film Board with 74 nominations are the most nominated organization outside of Hollywood? Not until this episode. And even a company can be recognized such as Eastman Kodak, which received it that same year. Obviously a camera company, one that used to own the rights to the theater that the Oscars were in. It used to be called the Kodak Theater, now it's the Dolby. The honorary award can be given for outstanding service to the Academy, although the last time this happened was in 1979 when an Oscar statuette was presented to Academy Governor Hal Elias, who had served more than a quarter century on the Board of Governors. The honorary award can also take the form of a life membership in the Academy, a scroll, a medal, a certificate, or any other design chosen by the Board of Governors. The John a. Bonner Medal of Commendation, given for outstanding service and dedication and upholding the high standards of the Academy, is considered an honorary award. It is usually given at the annual presentation of scientific and technical awards, a dinner ceremony separate from the annual Oscar telecast. They usually have a brief segment of these during the telecast to show you the secondary party that happened earlier in the week. And sometimes I'm like, man, why isn't that host hosting these awards? Uh, it always seems it's like, like the fun people, like the, I don't know, the Julia Roberts of the world. I'm not going to say anything. If you find her fun. I like her. her. (laughs) (laughs) 
The only life membership to be conferred as an honorary award was given to Bob Hope in 1944 for his many services to the Academy. Hope received four honorary awards. In addition to his life membership, he received a special silver plaque in 1940 in recognition of his unselfish service to the motion picture industry, a gold medal in 1965 for unique and distinguished service to our industry and the Academy, and an Oscar statuette in 1952 for his contribution to the laughter of the world, his service to the motion picture industry, and his devotion to the American premise. And while it wasn't an honorary award, the Bob Hope Lobby of the Fairbanks Center for Motion Picture Study, home of the Margaret Herrick Library, was dedicated to Hope in 1990 when he continued to serve the Academy and the industry with a contribution of $1 million to the Center's Endowment Fund. The most unusual honorary awards went to Edgar Bergen in 1937 and Walt Disney the following year. Bergen's, presented for his outstanding comedy creation, Charlie McCarthy, was a wooden Oscar statuette with a movable mouth. I almost would like that more. Uh (laughs) It's like a little nutcracker. Disney's honorary, his second, was for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, recognized as a significant screen innovation which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field for the motion picture cartoon. It was a standard Oscar statuette and seven miniature statuettes. We talked about that back in season one. We did. And finally, while the honorary award is not called a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Academy, but it is often given for a life's work in filmmaking, such as Polish director Andrzej Wajda in 1999 and Ilya Kazan the previous year. Today, with Mr. Alan Rickman, I think we could come up with our own title for our honorary award, our own little thing. Do you have any ideas? Uh, none yet. But can I point out that Alan Rickman has been nominated for 35 awards in his body of work, and he won nine. And we're here today to give the man an honorary Oscar, but the funnest of fun facts is that Alan Rickman was never nominated for an Academy Award, not even invited. Rickman's quoted as saying, parts win prizes, not actors, and maybe he'd know best. During his career, he did win a an Emmy, a Golden Globe, a BAFTA, People's Choice Award, an MTV Award, Satellite Award, even a Saturn. I mean, the man ran the gamut of award shows, but was never invited to the Kodak Dolby Theater. So Alan Rickman has 73 credits on his IMDb profile. 73. And we're going to break them all down right now. Welcome to our four-part episode of Alan Rickman. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So let's break down his performances. 73 credits. But let's look at only what the Academy would nominate. Out of 73 credits, there are shorts, voice work, video games, documentaries, 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 (laughs) (laughs) documentaries, TV, those all account for about 33 of those credits. So we are now down to 40 things to talk about. That's still a lot. We could turn eight of these into one because they're the one role of Severus Snape in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. So eight minus one is... Seven. <laughs> Good job. So 33 things to talk about. We don't have to talk about Noble Son, Nobel's Son, Bottle Shock, and CBGB because... Ooh, let's not get into spoilers just yet. So... But some of these just haven't really stood the test of time. And if there's one benefit that Lee and I have here at Saltota is the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> Do you like that, Saltota? <laughs> uh, although I don't know how much hindsight you need to know that Green Book is not going to go far in the annals. So I'm going to suggest bypassing the subject of the following titles. But if you disagree with any of these, let me know. Speak now or forever hold your peace, okay? Well, I'll speak then before you mention any of these titles. I tried to find everything. In particular, I wanted to see The Winter Guest because he directed that one. 
And I think it was his first collaboration with Emma Thompson. But yeah, I would have watched all of these if I could have found them. The only one that I could find was Snow Cake, which is on Amazon. All right. So these are the titles that we either couldn't find or we found and he wasn't altogether too much in them. We got Mesmer, The Search for John Gissing, Portraits in a Dramatic Time, The January Man, A Promise, An Awfully Big Adventure. Really wanted to see Awfully Big Adventure. Yeah, me too. Some, me too. some of these you can't can't even get on Region 1 DVD. I think Awfully Big Adventure was one of those. A Dark Harbor, Judas Kiss, Close My Eyes, Blow Dry, The Winter Guest, Closet Land, Snow Cake, Bob Roberts, which we talked about in episode 205 briefly, and then Michael Collins. That is 14 titles right there. So 30 minus 14 is... Uh, uh, 16. Oh, good job. That was even harder. So 73 credits to 16. Phew. Some of these we don't have to talk about at length. So any of these 16 that we just want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I'll give a shout out to Dogma. I was a pretty big Kevin Smith fan for a minute there. And I still think, I still think the best thing he ever did was Clerks. And I'm very worried about Clerks 3 because I thought Clerks 2 was actually pretty good. But this was the first time I remember seeing Rickman in a straight comedy. And it's not to say that he hadn't done any, but it was the first time I saw it. I used to really like this movie, but it's kind of a nightmare in retrospect. What was the last time you rewatched this one? I guess not for a while because I still really like this movie. <laughs> As far as like dogma goes, I really think it's one of Kevin Smith's most intelligent works, I guess I could say. It with seems the ship very, monster? With the ship, but even with the ship monster. Like, I mean, you think <laughs> about what his other films, what you really gravitate toward his other films, his earlier films, I guess we should say, of Clerks and Mallrats and Chasing Amy and, you know, what was leading up to this was a whole lot of like dude speak, people just sitting around pontificating about things that everybody kind of sits around and thinks about where this one illustrated in a very competent, uh, engaging manner where Dogma was like he took religion and he executed it in a way that I've never seen before and it kind of made you think. So I really like Dogma. And then, you know, he got a great cast of people to join him on the journey all the way until, you know, Alanis Morissette was God. Rickman plays the voice of God or the Metatron in this movie. I think he has the best line in the entire movie, which is something to the effect of he tells the the chosen one, the descendant of Jesus, that he tries to he tries to introduce himself, and she's like, "Who? What? Just sit down on the bed and shut up." Jesus, wept. Look at my suit. Look, just take whatever you want, but don't kill or rape me. Don't give over, will you? I couldn't rape you if I wanted to. Angels are ill-equipped. See? I'm as anatomically impaired as a kendall. Now, make yourself useful. Give me that towel, will you? Honestly, you bottom feeders and your arrogance, you think everybody's just trying to get in your knickers. What are you? I'm pissed off is what I am. Do you go around drenching everybody that comes into your room with flame-retardant chemicals? No wonder you're single. Now, stand back. As I was saying, prior to your firefighting episode, Don't tell me the name doesn't ring a bell. 
You people. If there isn't a movie about it, it's not worth knowing, is it? I am a seraphim. The highest choir of angels. You do know what an angel is, don't you? Metatron acts as the voice of God. Any documented occasion when some Yahoo claims that God has spoken to them, they're speaking to me. Or they're talking to themselves. Why doesn't God speak for himself? Glad you decided to join the conversation. To answer that, human beings have neither the oral nor the psychological capacity to withstand the awesome power of God's true voice. Were you to hear it, your mind would cave in and your heart would explode within your chest. We went through five atoms before we figured that one out. Oh. How do I know you're an angel? What, you mean aside from the fiery entrance and the expansive wingspan? You want more proof? Fine. How about a tequila? And I really like every time he's bouncing off of Linda Florentino, like it's amazing. <sighs> All right. So that takes care of one. I mean, if we're going to be here to celebrate the man, I kind of want to just go through these remaining 15 and give our honest takes. Let's start then with the little scene or the unsung performances in alphabetical order, as well as I can do that. So he plays King Louis the 14th in a movie he directed oh, called just... A Little Chaos. We've made you breakfast. Only Francoise is too little to carry the tray, so we have Philippe to help. Yes, Uncle. I am the strongest. I could carry it. My queen. Good morning, Majesty. <laughs> Be it known that we intend to hold court at the Palace of Versailles within the coming month of May. Clap. Do you see how important it is to elicit the appropriate response? To this auspicious end, the finest examples of humanity shall embody the true glory of France in a palace of eternal and resounding splendor. Take note. Your eloquence they must love, your demeanor they must fear. I have further commanded that the greatest masters of France will realize this vision unparalleled in the history of the world in gardens of exquisite and matchless beauty. Heaven shall be here. I really like this movie, which is odd because I'm not in love with plants and flowers and gardening, but after about 10 minutes, it's pretty clear that it's going to be exactly about that. It's a bunch of self-important landscapers talking about each other's work like they were composing symphonies. But I'm glad I, I hung in because, well, it's a regular, I don't want to say too much because it is a regular <laughs> streamable on Netflix and, and on Prime. So in case you want to check it out, I went in mostly blind and I enjoyed it. So I would recommend the same. But the Can I ask you a devil's advocate question? Sure. Why is landscaping not as important as composing symphonies? <laughs> this is too early for this shit, man. <laughs> I guess you, with rhetorical, single rhetorical question, which probably didn't start out as a rhetorical question, but because I don't have an answer for it, <laughs> it became one. Yeah, you're right. I guess it, uh, fine. <laughs> I guess because probably I, anytime I was ever out in the yard as a kid, it was 
under protest. I never wanted to to do yard work. I was more of a, if there were chores to be done, I was like, I'll vacuum, I'll dust. <laughs> I didn't want to. I mean, cutting the grass was pretty easy unless we were bagging. You remember that our place was mm-hmm. meticulous, meticulously landscaped by my father with the <laughs> help of my my uh, brother and I, but yeah, it just, I don't know. I never got any pleasure out of it. <laughs> so I think uh, it's somebody that like, I challenged myself to landscape this year. How'd that go? Oh, I, I might as well have tried to compose a symphony. <laughs> uh, <full circle. laughs> um, yeah. The uh, people like your father that can actually, and my neighbors who probably all judge my empty garden beds, like, ah, I cannot, I cannot landscape. I don't know. So it's just one of those, like watch, I don't get into landscaping, gardening flowers either, but it was one of those, this is all about the garden of Versailles, right? Or at least a a segment of it. And to think about like, I have people dropping off truckloads of dirt in my driveway that I spread around. Like this is, this is so much more intricate and involved than that. And it's way back in the day when they didn't have truck services. So I don't know. It was interesting to me, but I, I see your point. I was just being devil's advocate. <laughs> I appreciate that. Brought up some uh, some tough memories for me. Of uh... <laughs> Actually, they're pretty nice memories. Little Chaos is a romance, but it's not a romantic story between the characters played by Kate Winslet and Alan Rickman. It's their platonic relationship that got me the most. They are the film's most enduring heart. Their exchanges like made me giddy. Stanley Tucci, Jennifer Eel, and the late great Helen McCrory round out a cast that just brought their A-game, but it's Winslet and Rickman that really made it for me. And the story is ostensibly harmless. It's you know one of those movies that's just like, oh, it's nice. I'm glad I watched that. But I, I, I found myself trying to look deeper and relating the character of Louis the 14th to Rickman himself. After all, Rickman chose to direct and star in this. And it feels a little bit like Rickman was saying that it was time for him to enter the next chapter in his life. Some sort of a return to anonymity, surrounded by earnest friends of good character and enjoying a general sense of peace and a job well done. I felt by the sheer fact that he directed it, I was I was looking a little bit deeper into who he was at that point in time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's more intriguing to watch an actor direct themselves because... I feel like in the industry in general, what you see on screen is what the director wants you to see on screen, you know? So no matter what is coming out of an actor's performances, whether it's a male wailing cry that might irritate a young Lee sitting out in the audience or, or anything, you know, like the 15th take over the fourth take. But this is exactly what Rickman wants you to see out of his own performances. So if we're doing like a Rickman appreciation episode, I think this is a good place to start because this is, I, I think about that scene where he comes in with his posse, if you will, and is talking to Winslet about the garden outside. And it's so quiet and it's so soft and all of his lines are delivered like with almost a whisper. It's kind of like just Rickman on Rickman, you know, showing what he can do. And what people are probably coming to this episode with is like these ideas of like Rickman and Die Hard and Rickman and Galaxy Quest and Rickman as Severus Snape. And this is like, I would say the most honest and authentic performance uh, that you could give only because he is he is showing you it it himself as the director. The next one in alphabetical order is The Butler, where Alan Rickman showed up at the end playing President Ronald Reagan. Cecil? This whole civil rights issue. I sometimes fear I'm on the wrong side of it, and I'm 
which is wrong. Sometimes I think I'm just scared of what it really means. But I'm trying not to be so scared anymore. This movie is interesting because it's not necessarily the people that you would think would be playing the presidents. Um, James Marsden played President Kennedy with Minka Kelly playing his wife, Jackie Onassis, which we got into definitely in the first season with Natalie Portman playing that title role. But Al Rickman shows up at the end as Ronald Reagan. And I was very surprised that his role got the most hate in this film. I think it was very unjustifiably... The critics, I think, because of their panning, were more panning how Lee Daniels approached Ronald Reagan's politics. But the fact that they were probably the most vilified part of the reviews of this movie, Alan Rickman's name just kept being attached to it, which I don't think is fair because his performance is great. His performance to me, somebody that is a staunch independent, it opened my eyes up a little bit more to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was president when I was born, so I was definitely not into politics at the time. It opened up, I think, my eyes to just kind of how human these presidents can be. But I thought it was an interesting positive take on Reagan. People thought he came off as racist. I honestly, I don't understand that take. Rickman, to me, plays roles like this with a pained expression on his face, a subtle nuance to his voice, which gives the impression his character knows things are more complicated than the people in this room will understand. It did take me a while, though, to get to his performance. I kept texting Lee and being like, where the fuck does Rickman pop up in this movie? Because I am falling asleep countless times. You didn't know he played Reagan? I didn't know he played, like I said, like I I always go into uh, movies, I go into books, I try not to read anything, I just, I want to be surprised. And then this is an epic movie that just, it goes on for a while. It's not necessarily a bad movie, like Oprah Winfrey, I, I don't like Oprah Winfrey really at all. And she really was impressive in this movie. This is one of those stories that would have been better served by like a limited series. There's just yes, too much- too much crammed into, what is it, two and a half hour movie? Mm-hmm. But if you want to see Alan Rickman as Ronald Reagan, I would suggest that you YouTube his performances. I mean, that's pretty much all. Like, I can't suggest you watch the movie, but I would YouTube his performances here because I think he did a really good... Him and uh, Jane Fonda playing Nancy Reagan, I thought was was really nice. I didn't even recognize Jane Fonda as Nancy. As playing Nancy Reagan? Yeah, I think I was probably paying as much attention as I possibly could to Alan Rickman. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I have these—I uh, have this condition where I don't see Jane Fonda. <laughs> like everyone else sees her. It's, anyway, what? You, um, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about this one, although you already shot me down because this is—and you're right. This was a made-for-HBO movie, but I liked it. It's a little corny. It's called Something the Lord Made. It stars Alan Rickman as Dr. Alfred Blaylock, and it also stars Most Deaf as Vivian Thomas. So this is really Most Deaf's movie. It's very stoic and he's reserved and he's not in enough movies. But but if we're talking about Rickman, who's also very good here. Yeah, he plays Alfred Blaylock, uh, the doctor whose research brought about the dawning of heart surgeries. Most Deaf plays his assistant Vivian Thomas, another real life man who began as a carpenter but became Blaylock's assistant. So the story is really about how Blaylock's medical advancements would not have been possible without Thomas's contributions and how Blaylock never really admitted that out loud because of his pride and maybe even because Thomas was a black man. Uh, Vivian is naturally brilliant, but he works at it too. Essentially becoming a surgeon by, by simply tagging alongside Blaylock and absorbing his tutelage. And as he gains more and more knowledge, Blaylock gives him more and more to do. 
until he's performing experimental surgery on dogs. Yeah. So if you are not a fan of that, definitely steer clear of this one, but doing it without any supervision, doing it completely on his own and with no degree. So their relationship deepens, their need for each other is is kind of nuanced and it's really cool to watch them perform together. I think that's something that we're going to keep coming back to with Rickman is he, you have, you have certain actors who you're like, ah, they didn't have chemistry with that person. They didn't have chemistry with this or they did have chemistry. I think Rickman made it work with, I, I think he's, I think he's probably strove to make it work with everybody. Two very unlikely people in a movie are Alan Rickman and most deaf, but they're really great together. But as for the movie, you know, it, it does take place in a pre-civil rights era and then it covers the civil rights era by that time. Um, the movie's almost over, but so it's no real surprise when most Def's character Vivian gets hassled or scoffed at by police or janitors for using the white entrance or washing his hands in the white bathroom. But Blaylock's colleagues, doctors, surgeons, educated men who've no doubt seen the gory insides beneath every skin color in the rainbow still resist the inclusion of a black non-doctor in their surgery circles, despite the man's God-given talent. And the title of the film comes from something that Blaylock says to Vivian, and it's a reference to him tying off veins or arteries. But anywho, the movie gets a little bit corny. Blaylock eventually kind of recognizes the damage that his pride has done to Thomas, and Rickman delivers his apology with stunted but believable poignancy. And there's that nuance again that you were talking about. He and most deaf are pretty, pretty great to watch, but the script is, is doo-doo, I got to admit. But like you said, this was made for TV. I, you know, I don't have a problem with you bringing a made for TV movie in because we're celebrating the man himself. This just would not have been nominated for an Oscar. Well, I was going to talk about the Barchester Chronicles, which was a, a BBC miniseries, but I'll, I'll save that. So we know that Rickman is drawn to good writing. I do wonder if he takes on these films, regardless of how kind of, you know, if they're made for TV or where they're going to be going in life. I wonder if he does these to draw attention to the stories kind of behind them. Because we know he did, you know, he's doing these films kind of based off of reality. And this is about the man that brought about the dawning of heart surgeries. I wonder if he's like, he thinks, of course, about his writing and the role that he's going to be playing. But then I wonder also if he's like, but these are also stories that need to be told and need to be watched. Just wish he was still around so we could ask these kind of questions. Yeah, I wish he was still around so he would be in more movies. So let's talk then about his role in the Joel and Ethan Cohen pen script. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, going to completely throw my theory out of the water. Gambit. <laughs> um, where he plays Lord Lionel Shabandar. I enjoyed it. Firth was funny. Rickman was a good baddie, kind of more of a realistic baddie. Movie was cute. Diaz was irritating. I would replace her with Holly Hunter or Jodie Foster. And I'd say it's a solid three-star film. Another pleasant, cute, kind of ringing true of the sort of old Hollywood films. I heard you scoffing. Why are you scoffing? I mean, do you just find Cameron Diaz's accent? I find Cameron Diaz a ray of sunshine. Yeah. Yeah, I guess maybe it was the accent. I mean, she she didn't ruin the movie for me. Because I kind of miss, I mean, Cameron Diaz is, I think, retired now, you know? And like, while I didn't like the Charlie Angels remakes or whatnot, but like the mask and something about Mary, like- Something uh, about Mary is fantastic. She's- I really liked her in Vanilla Sky. Uh, I only like the women in Vanilla Sky. I did not like the film. But can we talk about the first time you see Rickman in this film? Like, but ass naked and spread eagled at his desk, telling Firth just to get over his nakedness and and read to him. Yeah, oh, man, pretty, I was like, oh, 
This is completely different than I've seen him. But I think what I'm enjoying the most about this deep dive into Rickman, if we predict the casual film goers, it would be how awesome he was in his in his first role in Die Hard and how memorable he was in the string of roles at the end. But this man, I mean, he not only made films better with his presence in them, but was in a slew of different ones. Like you said, this is an Ethan and Joel Cohen script, really went under the radar. And it's funny now that the superhero films blew up because to search a Gambit film, you have to sift through all the times they try to make the X-Men Gambit film. So it's poorly titled, but it's a remake of an old Shirley MacLaine film. And it's very fun. Old man just caught me up. He's expecting you. What? This is a story of Harry Dean. A long-suffering employee of multi-billionaire Lionel Shabendor. Have a look at these. Now he would have his revenge. His plan relied on a fake painting and a real cowgirl. How would you like to make half a million pounds? Yep. Hey, Grandma! God. These nice people want to take a picture in the house. Straight. Beautiful work. You'll never suspect it was a fake. Monet's haystacks. For years now, Chavendor has been seeking it with a passion. Haystacks dusk. I guess Harry here told you about this painting I'm aiming to unload. Perhaps you might be my dinner companion. Why, thank you. Man's a bit of an idiot. Oh, bugger me. Why were you out on that ledge? And why are your pants hanging in a tree? The man we're dealing with is not about mixing the professional with the personal. Maybe I don't mind being seduced by a multi-zillionaire. The man is a helpless ignoramus. Watch out! Had to hit the goal! Had to hit the hole! <laughs> I got you by the short and curlies. Excellent. Let us get down. <laughs> this is bloody marvelous. No problems then, sir. Security was a little tough. Oh. Getting anything else, are we, sir? Hmm? No, no, I shouldn't think so. He makes a lot of movies that they're sweet films. They're cute, they're clever, they're harmless. Stuff that like my mother would really like. Makes me think that my mother would have appreciated Rickman more if she had gotten to see some of these lesser known ones because the the sensibility that my mom has about movies is she just she wants something to be to make her feel good. And Gambit and A Little Chaos, Something the Lord Made, these are movies that will make you feel good when you watch them. People think that we're not Firth fans on this show. Isn't that right? Didn't you get a comment once about how... Yeah, yeah. And I would just like to say I really liked... I like Firth, and I like Firth in this film, and it's fun to see Firth, you know, and Rickman on screen together. So I want to kind of put that rumor to bed. We're Colin Firth fans. Yeah, We're going to talk about him twice in this episode. So the next movie is probably the first one that I watched way back months and months ago when we decided we were going to do this. Just sort of like incrementally watching Alan Rickman movies over the last couple of months. So this one is called Perfume, the Story of a Murderer. So I was very hopped up on this film and we didn't discuss it. And I was like, oh my gosh, we have to talk about this one. And you wrote a note saying, I'm curious to know what you like about this, LOL. <laughs> I am. So I guess, do you, LOL. 
So horrible title aside, this may be my favorite film I had never seen before reaching for this episode. This might be my Claudine, if you will. I may say CBGB as well. And actually, I guess it depends on my mood at the time because CBGB can be any day of the week. But one must be in the mood for a film called Perfume, the Story of a Murder. Obviously, the subtitle gives it away that this isn't some high art schlock about women's fragrances. This is about a quote unquote olfactory genius, a man who I guess we could say has the nose of, say, a dog and can break down scents like a sommelier can break down the wines in a glass. This man falls in love and wants to capture the scent of the woman he falls in love with in a bottle. And because he can't, he is driven mad and begins killing women in an effort to steal their scents. It's crazy. I probably looked at the title and was like, oh, this is going to be this is going to be tough. I downloaded it on my Amazon Fire because I was going to watch it in spurts, you know, throughout the day in different rooms of the house and different areas in life. But I was like from the first five minutes, I was entranced at this film. I didn't even care who like kept popping up on my like there. Dustin Hoffman suddenly appeared and I was like, what the fuck? What is this guy doing here? But then like I was back into the story. It was amazing. I knew none of this before. What this at the time, I don't know if it still is, was the most expensive German film ever made at $60 million. Now, why is that important? What is the stereotype of the Germans? Especially when it comes to manufacturing something, they are meticulous. What I first loved about this film, and if you're like, Lee is the one who diatribes about the film when you're supposed to be talking about performances. I know, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) But Lee didn't like this film, so let me sell it. What I first loved about this film is it will unabashedly show you 18th century France like you've never seen it before. It opens with a woman. It opens with the woman who gives birth at her market stand and discards the baby because getting pregnant is just something she does and the babies are an inconvenience but this baby survives she births the baby while selling fish and like tucks it under her cart so I guess just to hopefully die or she just always stillborns them but this baby survives and it's the olfactory genius whose first introduction to the world is the scent of fish carcasses and horse shit I don't know I'm huge on sensory therapy when it comes to olfactory and auditory huge People were nervous about adapting the 1985 novel to a movie because how do you portray smell on screen? And I think they did an amazing job with it. The way that they do the sense and everything has the camera traveling around and through various items. It gave me a little bit of my boy Fincher vibes from the 1990s. Smell has been proven to be in multiple scientific studies to be our most controlling sense when it comes to mood and memories. It is why casinos pump smells in to keep people sitting and spending money. Factory manipulation should probably be banned, maybe, I don't know. So I'm big on sensory therapy. This film targets the sense of smell in quite a thrilling way while showing you a period of time that feels more authentic than, say, Robin Hood. And finally, Rickman plays the father of a beautiful girl who the murderer sets his sights on. But he doesn't appear really until the midpoint, the second act break. You know, he comes in at the latter half of the movie. He, of course, is great. His daughter's scent is captured in a perfume. And right before he gets his revenge, the scent that the killer has managed to extract from his daughter's dead body, the scent makes him believe the killer is actually his son. So right before he gets his revenge, he can't. And man, the fucking mind-blowing twists and turns this story takes. I don't know. I would recommend it for the other podcast, Second Chance Cinema, but I'm sure MC would share your sentiment, Lee, of what the fuck is this? But listen, 
listener, if you're like, I've always believed scent is powerful and I'm in the mood for a fucked up movie, I think you're going to love perfume. All right, moving on. He was Elliot Marston in Quigley Down Under. And this film you have talked about of saying this is one that you saw early on in life. Mm-hmm. And I, I had never even heard of it until this episode. And while the film has some obvious flaws, it's still mesmerizing. Like it's made in 1990, originally conceived in 1975, has the feel of a 1950s film. Some beats read really false, especially when concerning the women characters. I don't know if I've ever seen that actress outside of Pretty Woman. And sometimes the false beats concern Tom Selleck. And really, I blame either the directing or the writing for that. But Rickman is the best thing about Quickly Down Under. His character reminds me of Leo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. But where Leo is made to be ugly and acts ugly, Rickman understands that his words are ugly. And even if he's the most cool, calm, charismatic guy there is, his mission in life is trying to get Tom Selleck to hunt people. And he lets his words paint his picture. Did you know that your American Indian is a race that has no word for wheel? No concept of farming, no understanding of land ownership. Is that a fact? Hmm. But from what I hear, you found a solution to that problem in your country. I guess that depends on whether you're an Indian or not. You see, in many ways, our two nations are quite similar. We both brought civilization to the Stone Age. Unfortunately, in this country, we have failed in one regard. We have been unable to domesticate the most backward people in the world, the Australian Aborigine. Don't mind him, he's harmless. My parents were slaughtered by Aborigines, Mr. Quigley. They attacked so fast, my mother was found dead, still holding us sewing. Nowadays, they butcher our sheep and cattle. Her Majesty's government allows the local settlers to deal with the matter their own way. Its official policy is called pacification by force. But the real issue is that primitive as they are, the Aborigines have learned to keep out of rifle range. Which brings us to you, Mr. Quigley. There's some god-awful tonal imbalances here concerning a piss-poor soundtrack when people are being slaughtered for just existing. If you like Rickman as a bad guy, uh, this is... I don't think you can deny that Elliot Marston is probably one of the worst people he portrays. He does it beautifully. All right, moving on to Lieutenant General Frank Benson in Eye in the Sky. This is actually Alan Rickman's final performance. It's one that I think was released in theaters, but didn't do too well. It's hard because, of course, politics are blah and suck and are stupid. And I understand. And so if you want to skip, skip, skip to my Lou, which Lee used as a saying earlier on in this season, which I really liked, you could certainly skip to my Lou, my darling, for the next two minutes, because I'm going to pontificate on politics. 
I would be lying to myself if I didn't bring up Alan Rickman's final performance in Eye in the Sky, which is a film about the politics of drone bombing. What I can say about the latter years of my life is that I'm always 50-50 on my retirement. I've always said I either want to retire into politics or retire in another country. One of my least favorite things about America is our drone bombing. In this movie where Rickman plays a general who you can tell war has kicked the shit out of, but he finds the perils of it necessary. This general sits in a room with four politicians who have to find other politicians to prove a drone strike on a suicide bomber that a colonel, played by Helen Mirren, found because of paid influence on the ground. Everybody in this film is stationed around the world as even the unmanned drone pilots, hashtag thanks Obama, are flying from what looks like a shipping container in Las Vegas. If you like me, dear listener, I ask you to watch this film where the titular characters wrestle with the fact they might kill a little girl to take out these suicide bombers. Our last offensive in Afghanistan was a drone strike on August 29th, 2021 that killed 10 people, seven of which were children. After the drone strike, the American government said the children were killed because the bombs in the car they targeted were secondary explosions they did not account for, collateral damage, and one to be blamed on the Afghanis. What we have now learned is that everyone killed was innocent. There were no bombs in the car. The man was loading his car with bottles of water because he was an aid worker, which a man of the family tried to tell the news decrying America for killing his family as our government officials were celebrating another terrorist killed. Where is Daesh? The man asked the cameras. Were these children Daesh? The youngest that was killed was two years old. So if you watch Eye in the Sky, you'll ask yourself if there's a good chance our government knew there was a high percentage we were going to kill kids that day, kids who were simply playing in their backyard, and they did it anyway. But regardless if this all sounds like conjecture, the truth is when we attack with drones, civilians die. Our government says it's possible we kill 2,000 civilians, which is a downright fucking lie. Conflict Monitor Air Wars has stated the U.S. has killed 48,308 civilians. And this is at the time of recording in October of 2021. The British newspaper, The Independent, quoting Brown University's Cost of War Project, has said overall between both sides, America and ISIS and everyone, 363,000 civilians have been known to be killed in the war on terror. Everyone, except the U.S. government, acknowledges the figure could quite possibly be in the millions. Eye in the Sky is not the greatest film ever made, to be sure, but it's an important one. And if I'm going to pontificate earlier about Rickman being in these films to lend his name, which we all know, respect and love, I think he's also being in this film because these are important films that people need to see. This is Colonel Powell. She's going to walk you through the capture of Aisha Al-Hadi, a.k.a. Susan Danford. We have intelligence of a meeting between Danford and numbers four and five on our most wanted list. We believe that they're connected to the recent suicide bombing in Kenya. We have information that they will be in this house today. This is an operation to capture, not kill. Range, 22,000 feet. You have your orders, Lieutenant. Your job is to be their eye in the sky. Yes, ma'am. I have to know if Danford is inside and who is with her.
happening? We see a suicide vest and a whole bunch of explosives. What's the plan, General? We have the ability to strike a target with considerable accuracy. I came here to witness a capture, not a targeted assassination. Dozens of lives are at stake if these men leave. We need to put a hellfire through that roof right now. Weapon is armed. What's that? Given the new circumstances, I think we should abort. You have number four and five on the president's kill list in your sights. You are putting the whole mission at risk because of one collateral damage issue? Minister. We are locked into this kill chain. I need legal clearance to strike. I'm the pilot in command responsible for releasing the weapon. I will fire when this girl is out of the way. There is a lot more at stake than you see in this image. They kill 80 people. We win the propaganda war. If we kill one child, they do. We've got two suicide bombers inside that house, and no one wants to take responsibility for pulling the trigger. We lost the visual. Christ. We need a decision. Ready. Right now. Three. Go! Two. Wait. One. All right, now that Spro and I have discussed some of the Rickman B-sides, we're going to welcome some friends who might be able to round out this discussion first. Our old friend and my nemesis, making her first appearance since season one, Emily, how you been, New York? Hey, fuck you guys. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. That doesn't have to be my intro. Hi. (laughs) Nice to to have you here, Em. Again, Em, you keep us humble. Great to see you guys or hear you guys. We are also joined today by a first time guest who's been a frequent guest on Spro and MC's show, Second Chance Cinema. He has his very own podcast, the Vintage Baseball Podcast, which is in its third season and going strong. His name is Rudy Swamp Fox Frias. Welcome to the show, Rudy. Oh my goodness. Thanks for having me, y'all. We're happy to have you, man. I always tell Spro and MC, like, they should just make you a permanent co host of. Of second chance i'm like he's the third heat you gotta he's the third heat you gotta bring him on oh but. man thanks that's you know i feel like that podcast kind of suits me i'm gonna be honest with you huge fan of this podcast and i listen to it and i'm like these are the smartest people i know and so i kind of huh. feel like in class we're sitting there and it you were reading a book and i'm waiting on my page and i'm studying that page so i don't sound like an idiot when it's my turn so that's what i'm feeling well, thank you for the compliment. I you don't I don't think you have to feel that way. I think uh, <laughs> all are welcome, all opinions are welcome and um, let's let's fucking get to it. Big thanks to both of you guys for making it on today to talk about Mr. Alan Rickman. So just to get us started, do you have any like initial memories of Rickman maybe like the first time you saw him? Okay, 100% first thing that comes up is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I believe that was my first, my initial, at least, acknowledgement of who this incredible actor was. Because he terrified me in that. And, you know, Robin Hood is one of those things where you're not actually supposed to necessarily, A, care about Robin Hood, or B, be actually scared of the villain. But he was... (laughs) <laughs> he was uh, scary <laughs> to preteen Emily. Uh, also, one of the first things, and it's really random, but there's a BBC television Shakespeare sort of anthology that Romeo he was Tybalt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can see the, like, the whole thing on YouTube, I think. Uh, yeah. And I, I haven't gone back to it, but I remember specifically seeing this. It was you know back when I was also watching all of those playing Shakespeare videos and everything in college with uh, all the original like John Barton videos. That was one that... that 
that made the rounds through. And it was like, oh my God, that's Alan Rickman. Oh my God, he's playing yeah. Oh my God. You were genuinely terrified. I don't remember being terrified of- I didn't of- say terrified, but he was scary to me. He was it was un- he was unnerving. Oh God, I remember constantly quoting. I th- I, every time he was on screen, it was the funniest part of the movie. My first recollection of Alan Rickman was going to be Die Hard because like, you know, I had watched Die Hard as a kid and I knew that was the bad guy, but I didn't realize he was the bad guy. And it was like I made that connection after watching Robin Hood. And because in Robin Hood, and I got to agree, phenomenal. Talk about a death scene. If you want to know how to die on screen, y'all, watch his death scene in Robin Hood. It is there's like drool and and he's crawling and it's episodic and and i was that i mean it's a sense memory like i think of robin hood prince of thieves i think of brian adams and i think of alan rickman and it connects so viscerally with me so that's when i was like yeah i'm gonna follow him for a very long time spro you've been pretty quiet most of your life and today i like to sit back and just let the guests shine you know i don't need the spotlight anymore it's true that's good (laughs) Should we talk about his popular films? Let's run through some of the popular films that we have not got into. I think the one thing that we want to talk about with these guests on air is the film Truly Madly Deeply, which doesn't get a whole lot of press. Have either of you seen this one? No. <laughs> you know why you know why you haven't seen it? It's tough to find this movie. I did the IMDB just because I was looking for years of movies that I was like, oh, when did this come out? I, I saw this because I was like, wait, is like the Savage Garden song? And naturally, I did a deep dive on it. And I was like, yeah, you, I, I can't find where am I going to see this movie? Because they like they said it's like Ghost, right? Yeah, same year. It came out the same year as Ghost, written and directed by Anthony Minghella, the the late Anthony Minghella. It was originally a BBC produced film. I don't know if it was, if it played in theaters in Great Britain. It may very well have. It definitely, it did the art house circles in the States. Yeah, I tried to buy myself a copy of this because I, I definitely like it a lot. And you can't, it all, the only ones you can find are Region 2 DVDs. So it's about a woman named Nina, played by Juliet Stevenson brilliantly, who is trying to get over the death of her boyfriend, Jamie, played by Alan Rickman. So the first half hour of the film, it's kind of her friends and family trying to bring her out of this funk. And then just all of a sudden, he appears in a, in a very beautiful scene when she's playing piano. He was um, in life a cello player. And it feels like they used to do a duet together where she'd play the piano. And he, Anyway, she's playing the piano and the camera kind of like tilts. And you hear the cello and you see him in the background, but she kind of seems to be teetering on the edge of not necessarily madness, but maybe like grief induced delirium. So you're not quite sure if like, okay, is he really there or is this just like her imagination? And then he starts talking to her. So yeah, it's very much like Ghost, but way different as well. The day Jamie went away, Nina's whole world fell apart. It's tragic. One minute he has a sore throat, then he's having an examination, the next moment he stopped breathing. Then, without warning, he came back. <laughs> it was truly miraculous. Are you here? You are here. I'm here. <laughs> I 
don't know. How much do we, of this one do we want to give away? Because the ending is, I think, will make you cry even more than fucking Ghost, personally. Really, I think Emily said it best in last season where we're just two mediocre dudes in a room with a podcast. Like when we're saying we're giving out an honorary Oscar for Alan Rickman, it doesn't mean a whole lot, you know, except for our thousands and millions of, of <laughs> listeners that are hearing us do such a thing to reward this fellow. But I think... I think when it comes to every single movie that we have talked about and we're going to talk about in his repertoire, this is the movie that needs to see the light of day. It needs to be promoted more. It needs to be on these streaming services of which there are now like a hundred of for people to appreciate what I think is a better version of Ghost. I don't want to give away the ending, but like how we could do like this is something that Soltata can take on amongst themselves. I hate Soltata can take upon themselves. I think we could find like we could get this as like Criterion Collection or inducted in some kind of film registry. If we could give anything to Alan Rickman and his estate, this is what we should take on is getting this film to see the light of day again. Because you're right, you can't find it in Region 1 DVD. No, nope. And not only just for Rickman, but for Mingella as well. Correct. Also, I think I said a lot of jerky things last time I was on. I was really pregnant at the time and we were in a pandemic. So I'm really sorry about that. (laughs) No, it's like I said, you keep us humble. It's okay, you fucking bitch. Those are still some of my favorite episodes, and I think uh, I, I can speak for at least a handful of listeners who have been like, are you going to have Emily back on this season? And God knows, I was like, we're trying, we're trying. Aww. So they'll be very happy to hear you. Let's move on to something that maybe you guys can chime in on. How about Galaxy Quest? I started out and, you know, maybe because I, I don't, I also don't want to bring the hatefulness, but my notes begin with, God, I hate Tim Allen. And I really don't care. No, no, really go don't. on, go on. Really, I'm here for I this. Really, yeah. Yeah. I don't really care for Tim Allen, but I think in the spirit of, of Alan Rickman, I would rather just be kind and say, I love this movie. Spro feels a little differently. Oh, I thought I might like this film. I've heard it praised a lot, but I did not. I Like, Rickman had the best character arc to it, but he still wasn't given a whole lot of character to play. I will say, though, to not bash this film or any performances, there is a beat at the end when Tim Allen dips Sigourney Weaver for a kiss, and, you know, there's the crowd, and everybody's celebrating, And but in the background, slightly fuzzy, you could see Alan Rickman with, like, the biggest smile I have ever seen on his face. And I don't think he knew that he was going to be in the shot. Like, I think it was just a very genuine Alan Rickman moment, which I just love. But I'm not a Star Trek fan. I'm not necessarily even like a Star Wars fan. So like what this was almost parroting for sci-fi fans went like right over my head. So I was just kind of like, and maybe it was just built up too much because there are people that love this film. And so when I sat down to it, I was like, oh, I like all these actors. Tony Shalhoub. (laughs) Yeah. Tony Shalhoub. Love Sam Rockwell. Love Sigourney Weaver. I love every... I mean, I like Tim Allen. I don't have anything against Tim Allen. I just... Justin Long? Uh, yeah. Oh, I yes. Love Justin, I, and just the right amount of Justin Long. You know, not like leading man Justin Long, like eh, kind of in the background Justin Long, which just, is perfect for Justin, Justin Long. Justin mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. mid-length. <laughs> 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 Dare you? That's really a good nice. one. 
Don't encourage this. <laughs> Spro, I'm I'm actually totally with you on this because I am not a Star Trek fan. I've never seen and I I basically I, I kinda need my my nerd card revoked because I have I know very little about Star Wars, to be perfectly honest. I had not actually seen Star Wars until a few years ago. So I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. Trust me, I know. But does that, do you think that keeps you from loving this movie? No, and this, but this is why I didn't get the buildup. I got the, oh, okay, there's this ridiculous movie and I guess I'll watch it, you know, and not really, not give a lot to it. I'm I'm not, I don't think it's asking anything of me. I don't think it's, you know, it was just sort of like a throw on sort of movie. And then it ended up being incredibly enjoyable. So I think it was sort of the setup of not, ex- not expecting a lot that it just exceeded my expectations so much and I found it so enjoyable. And also, while I am not a big Star Trek or Star Wars fan. I have a lot of people in my community <laughs> that are, and I could definitely see some likeness also in in all of the worship. I don't think I've seen one episode of Star Trek. I didn't see the movies until J.J. Abrams. Not even Wrath of Khan? I've seen clips. Didn't they save whales or something in that one? In, that was in number number four, The Voyage yeah. Home. There was a, yeah, I think there was a whale one that I saw a little that's bit all, of. That's all you need to know, Rudy. Yeah. That's all you really yeah. need to know. <laughs> I mean, I, I got it. So this movie, Galaxy Quest, is hilarious. Tim Allen, yeah, whatever. He's doing Tim Allen in space. It's funny, I guess. But um, oh. Alan Rickman, Sproul's edit, stole the... Sh- I mean, this is... You focus more... You find yourself focusing more and enjoying it more when he's on screen in this movie. Like, and I know, like, you didn't get it, Spro, but, like, it's so amazing to watch this actor who has been playing a character who has been typecast and can't get out of the role that he is most famous for. And the way that he has to interact with the fans glorious the face he makes when they come up to him dressed like him and they talk like him and they're doing the the hand gesture it is i could watch it all day how did i come to this not again i played richard the third five curtain calls there were five curtain calls i was an actor once damn it now look at me look at me i can't go out there and i won't say that stupid line one more time i can't i won't by Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warvan, I shall avenge you. By Grabthar's hammer. Next. By Grabthar's hammer, Dr. Lazarus. Don't do that. I'm not kidding. I'm sorry, sir. I was only just... Don't. You just feel bad for him. He's 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 over it. He's not you know he's not being overtly mean and nasty to him. But you're like this is hilarious to watch. And and then at this ridiculous point in this movie, he's in this ridiculous outfit and he's still got the prosthetic head thing on. There's like a a genuine sincere moment. That part yeah. makes me tear up. Right. I mean, and only he could pull that off. I was hooked. I was like, yeah, I'll watch this all every time it's on or every time I get a chance. I'm going to watch it. Sure. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can add also, so one of the jobs that I've had in New York, I've had a lot of jobs in my past 15 years here. And one of them was working Comic-Con and Star Trek conventions as a celebrity (laughs) handler. So, I mean, basically it's, you know, a small companies that will employ out people to be the celebrity handler. You meet them at the door, you make sure they're getting into all their spaces, going through with the autographs and making sure they're taken care of. You're sort of the first like security defense over people that are trying to get too close to them. And I was 
awesome at this job because one and and my my partner was also doing this job as well and we were both great at it because neither one of us knew or gave a shit about star trek <laughs> so it was just like hey how are you nice to nice to meet you so we're going to do this and and that was it most of these people found it really refreshing so i also had firsthand experience at some of these cons where people were interacting with these actors who were just you know they're so just oftentimes happy to be there but also like i'm just we're just we're just making a buck and doing a thing like everyone calm down please <laughs> um and and also saw some of those actors that were very frustrated and were just like okay yeah okay all right i uh when do i get to take a break yeah i wasn't too much of a trekkie uh either i watched a lot of the original with my dad when, when i was young we were either watching baseball or that but yeah, it still it still got me. I thought it was a clever script, the way everything comes together in the end, and each character kind of finds their purpose up there and among the stars. So Spro, uh, you know, you're wrong again, but won't be the last time. <laughs> That's fine. I'm totally cool being being wrong. It's I think the other great thing that wasn't mentioned yet about Galaxy Quest is there is a very switch, very good switch in tone from the second act to the third act that they pull off really well that could have been done horrendously in other films. But I'm super excited to have both of you on today's episode to talk about him playing Harry in Love Actually, because one, it's our first Christmas movie that we get to talk about on Saltota. And if you haven't seen this movie, shame on you. The main conversation I want to have, does Alan Rickman's character cheat on Emma Thompson in this film? I, I want to have this debate right now. Tell me. If you were in my position, what would you do? What position is that? Imagine your husband bought a gold necklace and come Christmas gave it to somebody else. Oh, I mean, would you wait around to find Good out night. if it... No, 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 happy Christmas. Would you wait around to find out if it's just a necklace or if it's sex and a necklace or if, worst of all, it's a necklace and love? Would you stay? Knowing life would always be a little bit worse. Or would you cut and run? God. I am so in the wrong. A classic fool. Yes, but you've also made a fool out of me. You've made the life I lead foolish too. Can I just first talk about how I had to rent three different copies of this movie from the library? And I still never got one that hadn't Why? been. I, because it's uh, so popular, all the copies that I brought home skipped. They were all rubbed with pine cones and cuddled by porcupines. <laughs> Thank you for that. I was hoping for some kind of a laugh. Or, um, <laughs> it was a pity laugh. It's fine, though. Oh, it was a charming movie, too. And it kept skipping at the exact same part. Um, and it pissed me off because I was enjoying it. It was charming. It was a little mawkish, sweet, corny, and lovely. And, and was that Claudia Schiffer for a second in there? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson's 28-minute storyline constitutes a fifth of the whole movie. But I think it's the most realistic and the least sentimental narrative in the whole whole film. All right, your question. Did Harry cheat? I, I don't I don't know if it matters. I think instead what matters is that after all the ceremony and happy tears that come with finding love, maintaining love takes work. Love gets tested, people betray, and we all have the capacity to be weak and stupid. <sighs> That's a very political yeah. answer. I yeah. mentally maintain. Oh, why? <laughs> You know, I mentally I mean, maintain that he doesn't. He just has a crush. 
And is having a crush cheating is the question. All right, I'm going to go with that. I mean, I'm sure I should know this by now in my old age, but um, what do you happily monogamous people think? <laughs> having a crush is not cheating. I think even having fantasies is not cheating. Uh, if you are in a, a, say, a traditional binary monogamous monogamous relationship, I think there is an element to if you are a believer in emotional cheating, I think that he went beyond this. I've heard um, uh, addicts and alcoholics talk about, you know, that they weren't relapsing, but they were looking for the house. Like they knew what they were looking for. They were looking for that house that they could get that thing from. Uh, or I, I heard specifically one one recovered uh, recovering addict speak about it, that before he relapsed, he was looking for the house. And it's like- Meaning that like the house where, where this person get, got their drugs? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so like moving to a new city and he was like, he was like, and I knew when I got there, I was looking for that house. I wasn't going to go in, but I was looking for it. It very much resonates like that for me of like, he didn't go in the house, but he was looking for it. He was putting a down payment down <laughs> emotionally. And there were interactions between him. Or I guess, you know, if we just leave cheating at, you know, a sexual experience with someone, then okay, he didn't cheat. But I think this was further enough along the line of the emotional cheating and the, you know, where's the line of going too far that I would be like, I'd consider this emotional cheating. That secretary was definitely the aggressor, though. I Harry? don't think it matters who the aggressor is, man. <laughs> I don't think it matters if, who's- If you are a soft-hearted soul, right, who's just hanging out, and then like, you know, I don't know. Rudy, then what do you think? Up, pull Rudy. your big pants up and say, no, thank you, I'm married. Or no, thank it, you, I'm not interested. I think it's more enticing when when women play hard to get, personally. I think the strong come on makes it... It's like when somebody tries to sell you something that you don't want. Mm. It's, it's, so, it's so easy to say no to desperation. So let me just say, first off, yes, he it is. It's an, He did not emotionally take care of his partner, sweet Emma Thompson. So yes, he definitely did because he acted on it. And the, the administrative assistant didn't make him do anything. Whether she was a, a aggressive, I believe the word you used, or not, he acted on it. And I think that's the beautiful point about this role. I mean, this this whole relationship in the storyline, because in the storyline, you're, you're dealing with like people trying to find that someone, you know, find that love. And him and Emma Thompson's storyline is like, not that the others aren't real, but I feel like theirs is the more authentic because it, it is a love, but it is flawed. There are mistakes that are made and he, the the way that he plays it and the every man approach because you're like, yeah, I know that guy. Or some like, yeah. Mm -hmm. or some people might be like, oh yeah, I've been that guy. Been I've been that, guy. that person. Yeah. The way that it rips your heart out at an essential point. But then that's this, I mean, that's the beauty part because at the end you're like, no, they're working through it. They are, they, you know, love isn't perfect. You know, this relationship isn't perfect. It does have flaws. These people are flawed, but what's more important to them is that love that they have. So it was, oh yeah, I, it's a tough, oh man, that one gets me all the time. I love that movie. Mm -hmm. And just that storyline is heartbreaking. That scene in their entire storyline is where Rickman's trying to buy that God awful necklace. <laughs> yes. and Mr. Bean. And Rowan Atkinson shows up and then he shows up again. What? Do you remember that? He's in the airport and he like, he runs interference. Oh, so Liam Neeson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Like that was, I thought that was weird. Like, what is he? Is he some kind of like, <laughs> like a love angel or something? Is there He's an angel? Cupid. Yeah. I feel Cupid. Like that was some producer being like, wouldn't it be funny if we got <laughs> him to come back and do that? And they were like, yeah. And they're like, it doesn't really, it's fine. Just do it. He's a catalyst, I guess you might say. I don't even know if I'm using that word correctly. So I, I do that a lot. But like in the Rickman <laughs> scene, you're like, as you're watching it, you're like, don't do it. No, stop. Get out of there. What are you doing? Don't do that. And the longer he takes to prepare it, he's giving him more opportunities to be like, just stop. I'm, I'm done. I don't want it. But he keeps like, he's like matching him. He's like, oh, you really uh, want to do it? I you never really want it? it that way. I never thought of it that way. And, and, and watching Rickman squirm and look around. Oh, it, oh, just thinking about it now makes my like heart race a little bit because it makes me that anxious. <laughs> what does he sprinkle on it? Like coffee beans or something? <laughs> it's ro- <laughs> like everything. Rose Cinnamon petals. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> What's that? It's a cinnamon stick, sir. Actually, I really uh, can't wait. Oh, you won't regret it, sir. Want to bet? It is but the work of a moment. There we go. Almost finished. Almost finished? What else can that be? You're going to dip it in yogurt, cover it with chocolate buttons? Who knows? We're going to pop it in the Christmas box. But I don't want a Christmas box. But you said you wanted it gift wrapped. I did, but... This is the final flourish. Can I just pay? All we need now... Oh, God. Is a sprig of holly. No, 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 no bloody holly. But, sir, the... uh, Leave it, leave it, just leave it. <laughs> All right, let's move, let's move on to Ang Lee's Jane Austen adaptation, Sense and Sensibility, where Alan Rickman played Colonel Brandon. He's like saccharine sweet in this movie, and it's it's strange. After so many roles of being a bad guy, you know, his big three, Quigley Down Under, Die Hard, and Prince of Thieves, a couple of years later, comes out with this. Obviously got way more play than, than Truly Madly Deeply, where he was a good guy. But this is where Americans got to see the softer side of Mr. Rickman. Nor is the earth the less or loseth aught. For whatsoever from one place doth fall is with the tide unto another broad. For there is nothing lost that may be found if sought. Shall we continue tomorrow? No, for I must away. Away? Where? That I cannot tell you. It is a secret. So the only thing I remember about this movie is that the hat that he rocked, he, he, it was like a beautiful hat as Colonel Brandon. And he also like said something that triggered, he is good looking. In a movie with uh, Hugh Grant, is mm-hmm. that it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is prime Hugh. He's gorgeous. He's young. He's got the hair and everything. Just physically look, comparing those two, you're like, yeah, I'd, I'd give Colonel Brandon the business. He can get it. Like, he looked great in this movie. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. All right, he's very he, handsome. He's very are handsome. Are we objectifying Alan Rickman? Yeah, in our- <laughs> <laughs> Somebody needs to do it. I'm sorry. I mean, there's there's a difference, I think, between objectifying someone and just also saying that they are attractive or finding them attractive. Yeah, but Rudy just said he'd give him the business, for Christ's sake, so. Okay, he could give me the business. Is that better? <laughs> I don't know if that's better. I don't know if 
find it particularly objectifying personally. I also think he can get it, though, in Sense and Sensibility. That being said, I've never seen the full movie of Sense and Sensibility. And to be honest, I've never seen Pride and Prejudice either. I have never had any want or feel any need to watch any of the Jane Austens. I, I know, I know. It's like, I feel like I, this is revoking also my, my woman card, but like, I was just kind of like, eh, Darcy sounds like a dick. I'm not really interested. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Well, yeah. Jane Austen was, was fascinated by uh, writing about this, like Prince Charming who would come along with money and rescue her <laughs> from poverty. <laughs> There's three parts where Rickman just knocks it out of the park. The first time he meets Marianne Dashwood, played by Kate Winslet, she's playing the piano forte. And he stops in the doorway of this drawing room and is just arrested completely by not just the music, but by how beautiful she is. Of course, Marianne Dashwood is, yeah, she's much younger than than he is. And she falls for John Willoughby, played by Greg Wise, who's a younger dude, far more outgoing than Colonel Brandon is. Colonel Brandon's kind of got that that soft-spoken thing that you were, you know, sort of like a Mr. Mr. Darcy equivalent. But Willoughby ends up breaking her heart and Colonel Brandon's there to pick up the pieces. But when when she's being courted by him, Colonel Brandon kind of expresses to Marion's older sister, Eleanor, played by Emma Thompson, how this is not a good thing. And that's a great scene. And he runs, kind of runs Willoughby's name into the dirt. And then after Willoughby runs out on her, Kate Winslet's character, which he does, cancels their their engagement. Somebody comes along with money. So this dude's after money too. And of course, Kate Winslet's character doesn't have any money. So he bails on her, breaks her heart. Colonel Brandon actually shows up to Eleanor, who he sort of has got a pretty good rapport with, basically says, you know, I, I talked a lot of shit about John Willoughby, but I think he really intended on marrying your sister. So he kind of apologizes for running this guy's name through the dirt. Like I said, just very saccharine character, very sweet. And I think that's amazing because like it speaks to we all at this point was this 95. And I think he had a pretty extensive breadth of work where we realized he was a really great, you know, um, dramatic actor and he could be this just diabolical villain character. And he's just giving you something else. He's giving he's like, oh, yeah, I can do this romance, too. I can make you swoon. I can do that. And it was, I mean, just spoke to what, I mean, what an amazing versatile actor he was. So speaking of versatility, let's move on to his role in Sweeney Todd, the demon Barbara of Fleet Street. I'm really excited to get your guys' opinion. We said Rudy was the host of a podcast. Rudy also has done a lot of stage time as an actor. We should give that background information. Of course, (laughs) Emily hailing from New York. I feel like the year just runs in New Yorkers' blood. So Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barbara of Fleet Street was originally a play that Tim Burton then directed for the screen. I fucking love this movie. Yeah, and what I don't do, like. What do you I like? I don't like about? musicals. Well, I like the Tim Burton darkness. Obviously, whenever he puts his stamp on, as long as it's the darkness stamp and it's not the like big shit. fish. Big. He, did he do big fish? Yeah, he did I, do big fish. Yeah. yeah, I'm not a fan of big eyes or big fish. But when he does the dark stuff like Sleepy Hollow or Edward Scissorhands, which actually does a good job of both sort of a bright palette in darkness, I'm I'm on board every time. Yeah, the the, the whole opening where he sings, you know, the Lon- London is a pit smells like shit. There's a hole in the world like a great big pit and it's filled with people who inhabit it and it's uh, the streets of London, something like that. Whatever. It's called London. Have you seen the stage version before? Or have you seen no. a video of the stage version before even? No. Nope. 
be very interested to hear your thoughts. I think the music is great. I love the songs. The I was annoying the living hell out of my goodly wife singing the for like weeks singing. I'll steal you, Joanna. I'll steal you, ba 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 do ba do ba. But all Whoa. the songs. I mean, Helena Bonham Carter is amazing. Rickman's amazing. Sasha Baron Cohen's song and performance is mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, it's, I think it's it's a blast. It's not one that I bust out all the time. Plus, I love the gore. At some point, you should take a look at the version. There's a full video version, and honestly, in high school, I was a bit obsessed with it. I would watch the Into the Woods Broadway version and the Sweeney Todd. I forget if it's the London or the Broadway version, but I think it was from like sometime in the 80s and it's Angela Lansbury playing Mrs. Lovett. Didn't she originate the role? She did. It's just wonderful. To, and, and, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you watch so many times that even in seeing the um, the Tim Burton version, I couldn't help but just, like, compare everything to the actors that I saw in that video over and over again. To be honest, Sasha Baron Cohen and Alan Rickman are so untouchable in the way that they portrayed their roles specifically. But I was still much more partial to, I think it was Len Carew and Angela Lansbury and their original portrayals. I feel like, and I kind of agree, but in a similar sense where I'm like, I don't do musicals and I, I watch them occasionally. So watching this one was kind of like, I was like, oh, what is this? Because I knew it was a play, just never seen it on stage. But uh, I, afterwards, I did get a chance to see two different productions of it. And I just couldn't help. I was like, yeah, that, that guy's trying to do Rickman. In my mm-hmm. head, I'm watching because the character is just... Ugh is one of the worst people. Oh, I would say this and Hans Gruber are probably the two worst human beings he ever portrayed right? in the film. And no, and you're like, and it's this weird feeling inside. You're watching it and you, you you know, it's the separation of this, uh, you know, the suspension of disbelief. I'm like, I love Alan Rickman. Oh my gosh, this is a horrible person. What is, you know, and you want him to get it. You're like, oh, he needs to get it. Not in a good get it, but the bad get it. <laughs> <laughs> the other kind of get it. And so... It's something that I, I will never really forget, like just be so much so that if I ever see another production of Sweeney Todd, I'm going to be like, yeah, it should be Rickman. That guy's doing Rickman. I'm not well versed in the musical. Is this Sondheim? To me, when it comes to Sweeney Todd, I like the visuals. I like the actors. I like the story. I like Helena Bonham Carter. I like everything going on on screen. It always feels like the sound mixing is off to me. Is this a Sondheim thing where like the lyrics and the music don't necessarily match up as well as other musicals? mm, Yes, but it's sort of, it's very Sondheim stylized. In, in musicals in general, it's the whole idea that what the character is singing is what they're saying, but what they're thinking, what they're experiencing is what's happening with the music underneath. So even just the fact that some of it is, you know, the sound may seem so off or it's so uh, unexpected or not what you would usually have is sort of done by design, partially because of the mental state or the emotional journey of the characters that he's writing. But I mean, in general, also his style is, it's a bit off-putting. It's like, even if you look at his early stuff and like you get into uh, like West Side Story and everything, like trying to choreograph and I've gone into do to choreograph the fights for West Side Story before. And it's like, it's a fucking nightmare because he literally wrote some of it so that it was constantly surprising the audience. So when you think it's going to go, ba bum ba bum it's not. It's going to go, ba 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 You're like, what the fuck? I love it. I, I think that's an excellent explanation 
and that I think that was what that was exactly what hooked me. It was discordant. It meshed so well with with Burton's like that Burton esque look of yeah. you know production. I, that's what I loved about it was that the songs felt gross and ugly and they weren't pretty. Yeah, and that's I mean the tough thing also is like sometimes a tough sell because it is so hard to sing. So like they also were doing a bit of gymnastics with the arrangements of this in order to make it palatable and work for all of these people's voices. When you see theater productions of it on a smaller scale or, you know, that don't necessarily have the talent to be able to sing it, it can be a nightmare because these are such difficult songs. So yeah, even in the arrangement of the of the movie, they had to they had to do some tricks. I just I think that it's amazing. Like Burton's not an idiot. I mean not, not that anybody's saying he is, but like Sweeney Todd comes with like this 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 fandom and and this history already and bringing it to screen. Yeah, he he's got depth. All right. Depth's going to be Sweeney Todd. Fa- fantastic. What is the Demon Barber? What fantastic. We need someone just as good, just as capable to run alongside him and 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 at some point be above him and alan rickman was the most amazing choice i don't think of anybody else you could sit here and probably dedicate a podcast to be like who else could have played that role but it, it wouldn't make sense to me thanks for bringing it back to rickman i appreciate it i would have really liked to have seen a sweeney todd where actually rickman was playing sweeney i think he was better for the role suited for the role than johnny depp mr todd at your service an honor to receive your patronage, my lord. You know me, sir. Who in this wide world does not know the great Judge Tuppin? These premises are hardly prepossessing, and yet the Beadle tells me you're the most accomplished of all the barbers in the city. That is gracious of him, sir. What may I do for you today, sir? Stylish trimming of the hair. Soothing skin massage. Sit, sir. Sit. You see, sir, a man infatuated with love, her ardent and eager slave. So fetch the pomade and pomade stone and lend me a more seductive tone, a sprinkling perhaps of French cologne. But first, sir, I think a shave. Closest I ever gave. Okay, we got to do it. Let's get into it. Hans Gruber in Die Hard. I wrote that I was pretty sure this was the first time the wide world ever laid eyes on Alan Rickman. But it sounds like that was Prince of Thieves for the two of you. What's odd is I don't think I can remember for certain if it was my first time seeing him. It was either Prince of Thieves, Quickly Down Under, or Die Hard. I was watching these three movies multiple times between the years of like 1990 and 1994. All the experiences bleed together since Rickman is kind of the same snide prick in all three. But there it is again. There's the reason why we're talking about him. Because for cinephiles of our generation, it just seemed like Rickman was always around ever since I was young. You know, there's not much we can say about Die Hard that already hasn't been said a thousand times, but a little bit of trivia for you. Rickman was offered the role very soon after arriving in Hollywood. I found one source saying that it was five days after arriving in Hollywood, and he kind of didn't want to do it. He didn't want his first role to be in an action film. Sam Neill had already turned down the role, uh, but instead of following suit, Rickman eventually relented and became the only person who really could ever have played the slick and exceptional thief 
known as Hans. According to Rickman himself, he was cast because he came cheap. But apparently, director John McTiernan and producer Ron Silver, or Joel Silver rather, went to see Dangerous Liaisons on Broadway circa 1987 when Rickman was still playing, you're going to have to help me here, uh, Emily, Vicomte de Valmont. Yeah, and Liaisons Dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. who's a spe- special kind of, of evil bastard. And seeing that role, uh, seeing Rickman in that role, McTiernan was like, we're going to go with Rickman. So You can hop on YouTube and see some of uh, his performance of that on the 87 Tony Awards, by the way. I, I did watch some of it. That's true. She has resisted me for more than two months now, and that's very nearly a record, but I really don't want to hurry things. <laughs> we go for a walk together almost every day. A little further down the path that has no turning. She's accepted my love. I've accepted her friendship. We're both aware how little there is to choose between them. Her eyes are closing. Every step she tries to take away from the inevitable conclusion brings her a little closer to it. (laughs) Hopes and fears, passion and suspense, even if you're in the theater, what more could you ask? An audience? No, but you, you're my audience. And when Jerko is married and Madame de Torvel eventually collapses, we shall tell everyone, sure enough. And the story will spread much faster than the plot of the latest play, and I've no doubt it'll be much better received. I hope you're right, Vicomte. I wish I could share your confidence. I'm really sorry. Our agreement does not relate to the task you set me, rather than the task I set myself. I am grateful, of course, but that would have been almost insultingly simple. One does not applaud the tenor for clearing his throat. Hans Gruber and Die Hard, what do we say? Some people say that it's one of the greatest villains to ever be on screen. I am constantly struck by the fact that in my mind at that point, I was used to like the villain being like either really old and like just like, I don't know, I associate old white guys with bad guys for some reason or physically menacing, right? And he was neither. That struck me like he doesn't talk for the first, like he's on screen for eight minutes. He doesn't say a word. He's doing things. But you know immediately, oh, that's the bad guy right there. And then when he does open his mouth, have we talked about what an amazing voice Alan Rickman had? Because it was it was like butter. Oh, it's the cliche to say he could read the phone book, but like he could read any, he could do anything. So when he starts talking in Die Hard and he's just reading from his notes and he gets everyone's attention by just saying, ladies and gentlemen, you knew you were in in store for something completely different that probably wouldn't be matched afterward. Yeah, he earned the big bad so quickly and so smoothly. Totally. The complexity, like the one scene where then he pretends to be a hostage and he meets John McClane is what I always like go when he plays it so well, when he's like, you're one of them, you know, that scene to me is kind of where it's like, yes, this is, this is an all encompassing (laughs) performance. And you understand why, I mean, the hooligans that he gets for the job are all over the place with who they are and their specialty. I kind of like equated to like, he's like the evil Danny Ocean setting up an Ocean 13 diehard Nakatomi Tower plaza heist you know yeah and but like you see like if alan rickman walks in a room and goes we're gonna pull this off i'm i'm on board like that's my general right there that scene where he acts like yeah and that's writing Uh, that's a good writing oh you know they've never they've never seen each other so he has no idea what he looks like and then he acts like he's like a, a hostage what i like to watch is when 
I know it sounds weird, when he's not talking. Like when he's just standing there smoking the cigarette that they share. Oh, it's so good. It's so layered. It's beautiful. And it was something completely new. Like I think at that point I was watching like Arnold fight the Predator or like Terminator and things like of that. So my bad guys were like, this is this is a different level. And the way that he effortlessly did it, he looked like he wasn't he was never trying. I mean, and that and that's a compliment. He looked like this all came to him so effortlessly and naturally. I mean, he kind of shot himself in the foot a little bit in a good way because you're like, if Alan Rickman's in the movie and you see him, you're like, oh, he's the bad guy. I already know that, you know, because he's so amazing at it. I actually read somewhere that the meeting between he and um, John McClane, that was Rickman's idea. Hi there. How you doing? God, no, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. No, no, don't kill me, please, no, please. Don't kill me, don't kill me, please. please whoa, whoa, please, whoa, please, relax. Please. Relax, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. No, that's genius. That's what that's what I read. Obviously, there's no way for me to confirm that. We could see if John McTiernan wants to jump on the, on the pod, but... My guess is he would say no. It was also Rickman's, and again, this is what I read, it was also Rickman's idea that he should be wearing a suit rather than be dressed the same way as all the other terrorists. Uh, Just mm, sort of mm. give him that slick, which then makes his encounter with Takagi so much better because he's looking for him in this menacing way. And then when Takagi finally steps up and goes, enough, he goes, and I can't remember his last line, whatever he says. But then he goes, it's wonderful to meet you. Like super nice, like suit to suit. It's wonderful. Then they sit down and then he has that, it's a very nice suit, Mr. Takagi. Be ashamed to ruin it. He does that flex in the elevator and he compliments the suit and he goes, I've got two. Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his death. Die Hard can be polarizing for some individuals. It can, you know, in, in, I've, in my experience, it's been people who have been like, everyone goes on about Die Hard. Oh, I don't like it. But yes, it's an action movie. And yes, it spawned many, many movies afterwards that might not have ever come to match the glory of the first one. But I think that you can't have this great action movie. You can't have this this cultural shift in what a villain and a bad guy can be, look like, and act without Alan Rick. I think that just the name Hans Gruber, like you, you already picture you're picturing it. You're picturing him hanging out of a window, trying to fire a gun as he's falling. You're picturing him imitating uh, Bruce Willis with the yippee kayes. I believe that movie is not as successful. It's not, it doesn't last. It doesn't stand the test of time without Alan Rick. What I think like the funny thing also is like, I'm a huge James Bond fan. Like I've seen them all nowadays. I see them like the first night that they come out. James Bond has never had a villain like Hans Gruber and Die Hard. James Bond feels like they have to fall back on the trope that their villains have to be like disfigured in some kind of way to make them very villain-esque. And it's like, no, no, no. All you need is a crisp suit, a man who could deliver his lines like a Shakespearean thespian and just 
standing in a room full of guns as calm as can be because he's completely okay with the situation. And I think that's what Alan Rickman pulls off flawlessly in Die Hard. I'm so glad Sam Neill didn't get that role. And I kind of wish that Sam Neill hadn't gotten the role of Alan Grant in Jurassic Park, but I guess that's another discussion. All right. What? Who would you have wanted what? to get instead? <laughs> Spielberg wanted Ford. Ugh, oh, you and Ford. no, 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 no. Before we move on to our next film, I think I agree with you that I first saw Rickman in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So let's talk about it. His BAFTA winning performance as the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. We reckon he's nicked three to four million in the last five months, sir. All right, then, fine. Raise the bounty on his head. 25,000 crowns. Begging your pardon, sir. It won't do no good. How much you raise it? Really, Scribe, and why is that? Because, sire, the poor, you see, he gives them what he takes. So, well, sire, they love him. Just a minute. Robin Hood steals money from my pocket, forcing me to hurt the public. And they love him for it? Yes. That's it, then. Cancel the kitchen scraps for lepers and orphans. No more merciful beheadings. And call off Christmas. The treasury is empty. All day and all night, people plague my door, whining for tax relief and safe passage through Sherwood Forest. We cannot pay thee what the highwayman has taken. It's the shortest route to London, sire. It's the only road to London, you little ferret. Sir Guy's patrols have found nothing, sire. No camp, nothing. This hooded viper simply slithers into the forest. You, Myram, 10.30 tonight. You, 10.45. Bring a friend. For all its faults, I reserve most of my judgments regarding Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I love it. I love it nearly without condition. I love it the same way that other people love Top Gun or Pretty Woman, which are both terrible movies. And... <laughs> I need, wait, hold on. I need to cut in here to remind the audience that Lee thought Philip Seymour Hoffman was a horribly overrated actor. And we just got to push that last opinion in perspective. We should stop the podcast and not not even talk anymore. You added that adverb horribly. (laughs) I did not say horribly over uh, it. Anyway, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is my favorite terrible movie. The cast is kind of uneven. Reynolds' direction suffers a little bit, probably because of his inability to guide Costner's performance. And I'm over here doing bunny, bunny ears, air quotes. But the production and the locations are beautiful. Michael Kamen's score is towering. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is enchanting. And despite the diehard, diehard fans, I see the Sheriff of Nottingham, whose name is George, apparently, as Rickman's best villain. BAFTAs agreed with me. They gave him Best Supporting Actor Award for this film. Predictably, perhaps the late critic Roger Ebert hated this movie. And he offered the following compliment. Alan Rickman plays the sheriff as if he were David Letterman. He's a wicked, droll, sly, witty master of the put-down and one-liners. When he appears on the screen, we perk up because we know we'll be entertained at whatever cost to the story. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) According to lore, Reynolds practically begged Rickman to take the role. Rickman only acquiesced once he was granted the right 
to revise his role. So Rickman, along with comedian Ruby Wax and playwright Peter Barnes, rewrote large portions of the sheriff's part while dining in, allegedly, a pizza hut. And this would have been an early 90s Pizza Hut with like oh, the buffet yes. and the, like, the red the, cups, the red oh. cups. Oh. And that like the like stained stained glass red Pizza Hut lamp. The, yeah. Oh. yeah. And the Pac-Man table. Man. Without knowledge or consent from the film's writers and producers, they made these script changes and director Kevin, Kevin Reynolds incorporated them into the shoot. It was their little secret. And I guess Rickman even added some extemporaneous lines such as call off Christmas and my personal favorite, Loxley, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. (laughs) So for those of you that lap up gossip like kittens do milk, let me offer one final thing. Rickman's work on the film made Costner nervous. So nervous, in fact, that Costner complained to director Kevin Reynolds demanding that the sheriff scenes be cut down or axed entirely which in the end didn't matter because the sheriff blows everyone else off the screen, including the Prince of Thieves. Side note though, Kevin Reynolds edited all of that cut footage into an extended cut of the film. So if you love Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, there is an extended cut that you can check out. I recently rewatched this for the first time since childhood, and I think the same things resonate with me. One, I really like Christian Slater in this movie. Wait, uh, who is what? Christian Slater in this movie? Oh, God, really? Will Scarlet. Will Scarlet. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. His brother. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Wow. I had like, I have like ducked that away. I've tucked that away. I've blacked that out. Two, I agree with you. I think Reynolds directing this movie was probably one of the worst things about it, except maybe Costner's I'm not even going to try to be English (laughs) accent, but this is a really good script. And like you said, you know, he had a hand in rewriting it. But to me, there's been a lot of iterations of Robin Hood. I'm not going to include Men in Tights, although it was a very fun little parody. But this encapsulates, I think, the legend of Robin Hood better than anything else, way better than the Russell Crowe story. If it wasn't for the directing, I think this would be up there, I think, with like Last of the Mohicans and Braveheart. But the best thing about it is Rickman, and not just Rickman, but his interactions with everyone around him. I watched him and thought of Chris Sarandon from Princess Bride, one of my all-time favorite films. But Humperdinck doesn't hold a candle to the sheriff. And it's not because one is easier to take than the others. Rickman is actually funnier than Sarandon and at the same time more ruthless and at the same time even scarier. So my question for you, though, is because you have the extended cut. I read it somewhere that the witch is actually Sheriff of Nottingham's mother, which while you rewatch the film makes the scenes between them very intriguing because you know Rickman can stand the witch he needs the witch to tell the future but at the same time he's very grossed out by the witch and so knowing that the witch is actually his biological mother you're like oh my gosh just show me the reveal and I want to know since you own the extended cut did they put anything about that in there 90% of the scenes that they put back in are the sheriff and Mortiana and then there's one where they steal the the wagon from from Friar Tuck and Robin Hood goes like flying into a lake which is why he's wet in the in the theatrical cut when they approach Friar Tuck and he like bites Kevin Costner's leg that's why <laughs> that's why Costner's all wet in that scene yeah no they flesh that out entirely I assumed when I first watched it that they were like that was her son I don't know why to me I was like oh that's that's his mom and no I, I was right there with you Rudy they're in cahoots like let me just 
no one it's 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 a feat he has played some horrible people who have done horrible things but in the scene where he's trying to consummate the marriage and they're down on the ground and there's this bit of comedy that shouldn't be there but is and it's hilarious and it's where the witch takes and puts a pillow under Maid mm-hmm. Marian's head. They're like, oh, we want her to be comfortable for this. And like just Rickman's physicality and his face. And he's like, let's do this already. It shouldn't be funny, but it is. Oh my gosh. And that that's what he brought to it. And it makes sense because I got to agree with Ebert on that. Anytime he's on screen, that's when I you, you pay attention because you're going to get that funny one-liner, the eye roll. The man could roll his eyes. Like a, a Rickman, a Rickman roll. Let's just call that now. <laughs> Let's call that now. Yes. It's iconic. He he mastered it. You want to learn how to do it, kids? Go back and watch it. Uh, Kevin Costner and everybody else should have been nervous because he was brilliant. <laughs> I think you all covered it pretty well. I mean, at the, I, I'm also still reeling from the fact that I blocked out Christian Slater as Will Scarlet <laughs> because now. <laughs> looked up the IMDb. I'm like, oh my God, how did I forget all of that? <laughs> also, just a brief moment for Michael McShane as Friar Tuck, because that was also a magical performance. <laughs> I, for so the longest good. time, thought he was British. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely, I mean, hands down, it is what steals, steals the show. And I cannot help but have, because of the amount of times that it was perhaps on TV as I was growing up, Men in Tights has sort of messed with... <laughs> seeing Prince of Thieves again, because it's obviously, you know, completely based on that. But, you know, probably in the same way that I did see Spaceballs a number of times. And then when I went back to see Star Wars, I was like, (laughs) okay. And I mean, at the end of it, at the end of the day, it's like Rickman absolutely made this, you know, and he does, he chews some scenery in it. He does go a little over the top and above and beyond. But I mean, if you're going to play it and you're going to do this why not go for it? And they let him. It's not like they there wasn't also a director and producers and a bunch of people there. And also, I don't know, when people are like, oh, well, the writers didn't know about it. It's like there's always, almost always a writer on set. Someone knows. And they're going to be checking the dailies or they're going to be seeing what's going on. So somehow, you know, but what happens is sometimes they're able to sell it and then they convince the writer that that should be in there. So Kevin Reynolds was able to finagle that, but not a British accent out of Kevin Costner. All right. They do like the double take, like, all right, let's do it this way. And then we'll do it Rickman's way. And then Rickman's way, like, finds the cut. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. You guys were talking earlier, uh, Rudy specifically, you were talking about um, the death scene. I, too, have dabbled in theater, but uh, only in high school a long, long time ago. Probably my favorite role I ever played was El Gallo in The Fantastics. And El Gallo has his death scene during the kidnapping scene. As soon as I knew I got to do a death scene, my mind immediately went to Rickman in Robin Hood. And that, I mean, I basically just, I did a shitty, shitty version of Rickman's death scene. And I, I like staggered around and like, I pulled the sword out the way he pulls that little dagger out. And you even you even picked up on the drool, dude. Like when he removes the blade and makes that like oh, sound, a cascade of of spit comes out of his mouth, <laughs> like like he's lost all ability to do anything except take this dagger out. Uh, yeah, and then he looks at her because it was the dagger that he gives her at the very beginning after he finds out that Robin Hood and um, Azim go anyway. And he looks at her like I fucking gave this to you. And then he crawls 
into the window. Like he's trying to like let his soul out of the window or just because he wants to see the sunlight and then dies leaned mm. against itself. So, so fucking good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it pissed me off because like when I was able to have a character that got a death scene, I feel like all of my directors were like, no. Like, they wouldn't let me do what Rickman did. They were like, no. It's a perfect fit for the Fantastics because it's supposed, it's all, it's all a a farce to make the other characters. So, so going over the top was, I was, um, I was allowed to. Lucky. And, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's the whole thing is like, you can't get a death like that unless you can sell the shit out of it or it's the, it's, and it's, and if it's perfect for that character as well. It didn't work for you, Rudy, when you played Tybalt. Yeah, that director was like, "No, you you good, you good." Yeah, you know, I had to I had to sit through a bunch of sad Romeos, but yeah, I did. It was great. Oh, I hear you. That's awesome. (laughs) And this is the another thing. This is another reason. Like, what? So he Die Hard in the eighties and and Robin Hood in the nineties. Each are going to be. This is a this was a summer blockbuster. This had the pop song backing it up. That people play at their weddings all the time now or something his energy was perfect his energy was what was needed you know the scene where he whips out the sword you know how many times i've just with random things gone recognize this (laughs) and you can't and just me doing that really shitty impersonation you everybody heard him say it in their heads because he's it was it was what was needed once again he said, all right, I was a bad guy in Die Hard, and I showed you what I can do there. Let me take this character. Let me just put my spin on it. And nobody else is going to do it as good as him. Before we move on, I kind of want to check Emily's nerd card and just see if this box is checked off. Emily, have you watched the Harry Potter films? Yes, I have. Okay. <laughs> I also read all of the books. Oh no! I was doing I was doing summer stock in Vermont, and once we were brag. done with rehearsals, I was. It's really nothing to brag about. But <laughs> once we were done with rehearsals, it was like I had retired. We only had shows at night, and then it was just hanging out. And I remember it, I started reading the Harry Potter series, and I got through half of them. They really, uh, <laughs> they they really trick you because the first book is very very short. And then the second one is much longer. And then the third one, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Right, right. The fourth one is really the one where it balloons. Goblet of Fire is like, that's it. I think 900 or 1,000. Yeah, I was like, rude, rude. I am busy, rude. Yeah, Yeah, that was. They were like double spaced. Well, like, so, like, I had a similar situation, but different. Like, we, uh, it was the summer. I was in between rehearsals up in Cleveland. Spro, you were there. And I was uh, in a new relationship. And I was like, you know what? I want to impress this uh, person and and, uh, show her that I can read. And I was like, yeah, I'll grab Goblet of Fire before it comes out in theaters. And I'll read that book. And then I picked it. It's a door stopper now. Like, it's literally, it's like... I never finished it. I think I got 20 pages in and I was like, shit, I'll just watch the movie. I don't care. So yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> You're like Tom Berenger in Major League reading Moby Dick. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so moving on, we are going to talk about Alan Rickman's role as Severus Snape in the Harry Potter films. There will be no foolish wand waving or silly incantations in this class. As such... I don't expect many of you to appreciate the subtle science and exact art that is potion-making. However, for those select few who possess the predisposition, 
I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. Then again, maybe some of you have come to Hogwarts in possession of abilities so formidable that you feel confident enough to not pay attention. Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. Tell me, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? You don't know? Well, let's try again. Where, Mr. Potter, would you look if I asked you to find me a bezoar? I don't know, sir. And what is the difference between monkshood and wolfbane? I don't know, sir. Pity. Clearly, fame isn't everything, is it, Mr. Potter? So for the last 10 years or more, whenever I rewatched Die Hard, which is, you know, Rickman's career-making role, it's his first Hollywood role, I can't study him now without thinking of Severus. And if you look closely enough, you can see Snape was there underneath the snarky marble waiting to live on film. Thank you, J.K. Rowling, for insisting that Rickman play Snape. You were the driving force behind his casting. And honestly, despite the interminable list of talent from all of these films, I don't know if it would have worked as well with literally anyone else wearing Snape's cloak. And legend has it that it was originally offered to Mr. Tim Roth. While I really like Roth, the Harry Potter films would have suffered without Rickman leading the charge in this role. And I say leading. While Harry Potter is essentially Harry as two friends versus Voldemort, this episode and our podcast aside, I really do believe that this is a Severus Snape series, partly because of Rowling and her books, but on film, it's because of Alan Rickman's performance. He's just so good when he's on screen that when he's off, you're always kind of wondering, but what is Snape doing now? Where's Snape? What, what would happen if Snape caught them doing this? It's very remarkable. And even in like the, the beginning, even before the Warner Brothers logo pops up on screen, the beginning of the very last film starts with just Severus Snape alone, standing there watching as people file in to Hogwarts. And before I let you get back to your points, I want to agree with you about how loaded with talent these films are. Just incredible. Like there's just actor upon actor popping up on screen. But I think they're all in Rickman's cloaked shadow. And Ms. Rowling, while I'm thanking you, brava for entrusting Rickman and no one else with the secret backstories of Severus, Lily, and that most surprising of all the Horcruxes. One can find many legends and tall tales about how this exchange went down, but the one that I prefer says it went thusly. It's 2002, filming on Chamber of Secrets has wrapped, and Rickman is feeling restless. He realizes he's grown a little tired of playing Snape, a role he describes as an unchanging costume. Rowling doesn't want to lose her Snape, so she pulls Alan aside and lays on him the heartbreaking backstory of one Severus Snape. Meanwhile, the rest of us wouldn't hear that for another decade, by cinematic, not literary reckoning, of course. 
shit, by this point, the avid readers of the series hadn't even seen the word Horcrux in print yet. So newly armed with his knowledge, Rickman stays on and gives a performance that at first glance is superb. But once we rewatch the films after finishing the series with a keener eye on Professor Snape, we realize it was even better than that. And finally, thank you for a real bait and switch. Rickman, known for his bad guy antics, gets cast to be both the bad guy and the best guy. What a punctuation mark to his career. What a role. What a send-off. What a tribute. Can you think of another actor that, without playing the exact same character in, in sequels, gets to have these career-defining roles in three different decades? Like he's He has a whole new audience now when he signs off for the Harry Potter series. Kids are going to find finally get to discover him. And yes, they'll only see him as Snape, but the layers he puts on it. We all know I never read a book. I started one. And I was no joke. <laughs> I was like a year late to see the final film. I didn't see it till it was out on DVD. And I kind of knew what happened. And I'm not going to give anything away, but the arc and fall and, and just everything. Heartbreaking. I remember I'm sitting there on the couch, eyes full of tears. And I'm like, why? I've known about this. Pull yourself together. And I couldn't because it was just beautiful and heartbreaking. And it's interesting that you de- he just, de- I think you said he described it as a character without a costume change or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing that he would see it as that because, you know, I know he wasn't talking about like the physical clothes he was wearing, but like there was so much more underneath. It was it was acting without acting. It was acting the subconscious, the subtext, the the in-between lines. It was beautiful and heartbreaking. So when the time comes, the boy must die. Yes, yes, he must die. at the proper moment. You've been raising him like a pig for slaughter. Don't tell me now that you've grown to care for the boy. It it spoke to me because I had no connection to it. I'm not a small English boy and I'm not a wizard. So, like, I'm not connected to these films. It's, it's, It's entertainment. But the role of the teacher, the teacher that is stoic, that kind of scares you. We've all encountered that teacher. And then that teacher through, you know, the years or the year, the school year and the work you do, they open up a little bit. You get to see a different side of them. And it can be just the smallest thing, but it feels monumental. It feels connected. He he pulled that off. I connected to that immediately. I was like, oh, I, I had that teacher that I just wanted to like, I was afraid of, but I wanted to know more about because they just seemed so cool. It was great. Yeah, it was sort of right that with 
all of the villains that he's played in his career that his final villain had such redemption. Like a meta-narrative for his his career. And he, I mean, he was even quoted once as saying like, you know, people want to know who I really am. It's all there in the work. So it probably was very special to him. Like, yeah, you know, I, I've been playing these these bad dudes, but I'm not a bad dude. Despite the fact that when you think of bad dudes in movies, you, you might think of me. So, well, I mean, that's no, no villain is necessarily a villain to that person. You know, they're just doing exactly what they have to do. And that's another thing that he said. He said, you cannot judge. If you judge the person, you can't play the role. Exactly. But <laughs> by the way, while we're speaking directly to uh, J.K. Rowling, can you just ease up on the whole turf shit, man? Can you just like yeah. <laughs> ease it, ease it back a few steps back? Like we're Thank so, we just, inclusivity is such a part of, of Harry Potter right. series. Like why you, why, I don't, I don't, I don't. Bless you for bringing that up. It is <laughs> odd though with the whole like mudblood stuff. That, that she feels that way. Oh, but, um, yeah. It's like, why are you so, you're really caught up. She needs in to read Harry genitals. Potter. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned genitals. That made me think of Rickman. <laughs> okay, stay yeah, with me, folks. Very good, very good. Uh, it's not, we're not talking about it, but I want to bring up Dogma. And one of my lasting images oh, of Dogma. Well is- done. When she's like, are you going to like, I don't know, uh, sexually assault me? Are you here for to rape me or something? He goes, Cunt, and he pulls down his pants and he's like Ken doll in it. And I was like, that's, uh, and that was Rickman. And it made me laugh. And that's one of the things I think about him as well. So oh my God. And shame on us for not talking about dogma. Like <laughs> we can talk about dogma. Oh my God. Like, and that was because he was already so well known as like this incredible villain, but also this incredible classically trained actor. It was part of what was so enjoyable about him doing things like galaxy quest or dogma because he was he's so rich in and i'm not talking in money but god i i I hope he he lived very well he was such a rich character and and a rich voice and actor and presence that having that seeing him uh embody those characters in those situations was just so it just added its own level of hilarity just because it was him in his essence nail on the head he was flexing and he knew it he was like i got this you oh you think you know you think you think you've got me pegged watch this now and like you never think i've never seen a villain move to a sidekick a comedic sidekick because you know you're you're a bad guy you're the main bad guy you're gonna be the main bad guy for a little while because that's what people it's a lasting image in people's head and then he's like oh yeah well here's the comedy sidekick and and i'm gonna destroy that too and make it amazing yeah and then when he came back in and some of the more serious like conversations that he had more serious scenes he had it was just like oh yeah like yeah yeah you you were always known as that like you know evil villain archetype and now it's like oh thanks dad yeah let's talk about it okay it's it's an embarrassment of riches let's i mean truly i don't want this it's too big that's what jesus said all right to tell him Imagine how that hurt the father. Not to be able to tell the son himself, because one word from his lips would destroy the boy's frail human form. So I had to deliver the news to a scared child who wanted nothing more than to play with other children. I had to tell this little boy that he was God's only son, and it meant a life of persecution and eventual crucifixion at the hands 
of the very people that he'd come to enlighten and redeem. He begged me to take it all back. <laughs> As if I could. He begged me to make it all not true. And I'll let you in on something, but then it's something I've never told anyone before. If I had the power, I would have. It's unfair. It's unfair to ask a child to shoulder that responsibility, and it's unfair to ask you to do the same now. I sympathize, I do. I wish I could take it all back. But I can't. This is who you are. Everything I am has been a lie. No, 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 no. Knowing what you now know doesn't mean you're not who you were. You are Bethany Sloan. No one can take that away from you, not even God. All this means is a redefinition of that identity. The incorporation of this new data into who you are. Be who you've always been. Just be this as well. From time to time. He was an amazing actor, both dramatic and comedic, and a voice that like could put you to bed. Oh, just I could hear him. I, I can still hear him. I can hear him talk it, because I'm just thinking about like the various roles, uh, the robot in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that depressed robot. But like, it's just Alan Rickman. And you're like, you just it's so amazing. He had so many talents that actors now hope to get maybe one or two. They're like, oh, if I could pull one of these things off, I'm, I'm pretty set. But he, he was just so versatile. I like the fact that like, I feel like we uncovered Rudy's love. Like it, he's in love. <laughs> yeah. I, the voice puts you to sleep. He could get it. He could get me. No lies. Are you detected. emotionally cheating on your wife right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No for being a baddie. Yes. And I don't know about, but this deep dive into him, it was really nice to see him as not always a bad guy, especially like with how people view him today, especially with his roles in Sense and Sensibility and A Little Chaos, which is streaming online, which is a film that Alan Rookman wrote or not wrote, but directed about the Garden of Versailles because even in his less bad guy roles and when I say that I of course think Die Hard and now Quimbley Down Under he plays a man who has to wrestle with horrible moral questions especially and like in Love Actually and on the other side of the spectrum Eye in the Sky I think everything Rickman is and everything he brings to the table is encapsulated in Snape I didn't know the tale like that you said Lee of Chamber of Secrets but you're right that it magnifies his next six movies in the Potter verse to the posse. Look at me. You have your mother's eyes. So with everything that we have talked about, with everything under his belt, 
we're going to put you guys on the spot and try to come up with his top three performances, starting with number three and going up to your what you think is his best performance. And I'm going to turn this over to Lee first. Okay. Well, in my humble opinion, I'm going to rank his top three performances thusly. Number three is Steven Spurrier in Bottle Shock. Number two is... If I'm going to pick a villain, it's got to be Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood. And then I think his number one is Severus Snape in the Harry Potter films. Um, right. I, actually, my number three kind of mirrors your. I'm going to go with Hilly Crystal in CBGB. My number two, it's funny, my two and three, we did not talk about with Emily and Rudy on air. But number two, when you guys listen to the episode, I really hope you are intrigued enough to go fetch out this movie called Perfume, the story of a murderer. I think it would scare the bejesus out of Rudy, but Emily might be a little intrigued. My number one is, I mean, if you're going to say you should go check out an Alan Rickman performance, I think you should push them toward the eight films of the Harry Potter universe and him as Severus Snape in them. So, yeah, I'm going to put, because if I have to do a three, and these are the roles that I feel like he displays the versatility he has as an actor, I'm going to say Snape is number three. And we went on about it and why it's amazing. Alexander Dane, Galaxy Quest. It's just such a good comedic, deep it's it's an endearing performance and the, the the reason that he became well known in the cultural consciousness the die hard hans gruber number one yeah to be honest if i'm if i'm really going through it and it's by i mean my own personal taste as far as what uh, i'm gonna go with die hard number three galaxy quest number two I'm going to go with Dogma number one. I mean, I, I, it's just as far as like what endeared me to him, that would be the list. Listener, go go watch Dog. All right. Yeah, go seriously, go I got to rewatch it. I got to yeah. do another. I got to do another pass through. I know yeah. some of it is definitely not going to hold up. But that being said, accepting that. <laughs> I remember seeing that being like, and this was back when I was super huge fan of Kevin Smith. I was like, wow, Alan Rickman's kind of slumming it with Dogma. But it wasn't that at all. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he elevated the absolute living shit out of that movie by playing Metatron. That's an interesting, you guys zagged on us, but it is our show. <laughs> no, this is just an honorary award. Two votes for for Severus Snape. I think that vote for Die Hard is, uh, is probably one that most of our listeners will agree with. And the, I love the zig in, on, on Dogma there too, or the zag. Was that a zog? Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry. Did you write that joke? Did you write that one? (laughs) All right. So that brings us then to closing this, this episode out. And I was wondering if, Emily, you would mind reading the statement that Emma Thompson uh, released following Rickman's passing. Happy to. Alan was my friend, and so this is hard to write because I have just kissed him goodbye. What I remember most in this moment of painful leave-taking is his humor, intelligence, wisdom, and kindness. His capacity to tell you with a look or lift you with a word. That intransigence which made him the great artist that he was. His ineffable and cynical wit, the clarity with which he saw most things, including me, and the fact that he never spared me the view. I learned a lot from him. He was the finest of actors and directors. I couldn't wait to see what he was going to do with his face next. 
I consider myself hugely privileged to have worked with him so many times and to have been directed by him. He was the ultimate ally in life, art, and politics. I trusted him absolutely. He was, above all things, a rare and unique human being, and we shall not see his like again. That was really, really nice. Yeah, it, it got really, me. Really, it was like really calming. Thank you so much for reading that. That was beautiful. No, it was my pleasure. So in closing of uh, this episode and of our second season on Sproul and Lee Take on the Academy, we hope that we convinced you listeners to celebrate the man and maybe see a lot of these movies that Spro and I, we didn't never seen until we did this deep dive. I think perhaps thespians like these should be celebrated now, today, while we can hear them speak. Well, I know I say a lot about the Oscars and either put up their noses and look down on those who will criticize them, but there's a slew of actors and actresses out there that have contributed greatly to the world of cinema who may never see its biggest stage. Even Marvel, the first three phases of Marvel, concluding with Endgame, should get props outside of the technical achievement dinners. A rising tide lifts all ships is one of my favorite sayings. And as Marvel put butts back into theater seats, Alan Rickman elevated every film he was in by showing up on camera. It's time the board of governors, whoever they are, and I can actually picture Alan Rickman playing a perfect governor on the board. They need to start thinking outside of the box. Alan Rickman deserves this posthumous honorary Oscar for his work on screen. I don't think there's any doubt. This much, Emily and Rudy and Spro and I and everyone out there in the podcast verse must see and feel when they watch the man on their screens. But what about the man himself? Well, this episode is only the first part in our two-part episode of Rewarding Mr. Rickman. For the second part, we have secured an interview with two filmmakers that have worked with Mr. Rickman three different times on three different films. For part two, Spro and Lee take on the Academy season finale, The Ode to Alan Rickman. Lee and Spro sit down with director Randall Miller and writer Jody Savin to discuss working with Alan Rickman on the films Nobel Sun, Bottle Shock, and CBGB. We would like to thank Rudy and Emily for jumping on board with us here today. Look forward to seeing you both in season Season three and wishing you guys a wonderful award season or holiday season, whichever you celebrate more. Thanks for having us, you guys. Um, this has been a highlight, y'all. Thank you so much. You guys have anything you want to plug? You know, if you enjoy debate, uh, I would check out the Mount Rushmore podcast, which is uh, you can find on uh, Podbean and, and other streaming pod services. It's a it's a wonderful podcast that focuses on uh, making new Mount Rushmores. And I love it. And I got a sneak sneak preview of season one and listened to almost every every episode. It's very fun. It's just yeah, just lots of lots of great voices, really interlocking personalities. It's very funny. Yeah, it's a really it's not it's a complete opposite. This is a very supportive podcast. The hosts support you and your opinions, and it's it's a nice uh, treat for me because I don't really get that on the Mount Rushmore podcast. So thank you, Em. <laughs> I I have nothing to plug. Tip your you want- bartenders and and be kind to people on film crews and just be good to each other. It's still a fucked up world out there. Hell so yeah. y- you want to plug world peace? Just don't be an asshole. How about that? That's what I'm going to plug. <laughs> Can I still be an asshole? A little bit. I mean, I, regardless of what I say, you're still going to be an <laughs> asshole. So. I saw a little bird sitting in a tree who wanted to start a family. Wait 
to find a maid sat in a tree and sang a plea he went tweet 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 he were looking for a sheep all right well thank you again i guess until part two i'm lee and i'm spro and we hope to see you front row when the envelopes are red My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress when she walks treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Alan Rickman. He has died at the age of 69 from cancer. We've just had it confirmed from his family as well. Alan Rickman, the British actor, has died. He was a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company in both modern and classical theatre productions. But I'm just looking now at his incredible list of films that he's made. You probably know him from the Harry Potter series, but he was also in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He was the villain in Die Hard uh, back in the day. Love Actually had a starring role in and he actually won an Emmy Award for Rasputin, Dark Secret of Destiny. Alan Rickman, uh, an incredibly well-known, popular actor, winner of a BAFTA Award, a Golden Globe Award, an Emmy Award, a Screen Actors Guild Award. Here he is here signing autographs in London, but we can now confirm the very sad news that he has died from cancer at the age of 69.